Steven, welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name is Brendan Bigley. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> I, I do co-host this show, just for the record. Uh, I'm Stephen Hilger. Uh, you know, exciting news. It's snowing for the first time in Chicago. Oh, like, nice. A very romantic late fall, early winter snow. Yeah. You know, before yeah. it becomes the, like, gray slush of full spring. Yes. Yes. So I'm, I'm currently very into it right now. Yeah, we we are yeah, we're in the era of of the year where it's like okay that it's cold out, but then as soon as New Year's is gone, I'm, yeah. I'm over it. <laughs> exactly. The bleak holidayless winter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, as soon as you start having to work seven days a week every single week during the winter that's when it gets really brutal totally not seven days a week i hope you're not doing that dear listener <laughs> yeah please take a break take a break <laughs> we have so many games to talk about today just you know behind the scenes like usually brendan and i will before recording like say everything we've been playing and then kind of make a stack that that makes sense sort of at least to the best of our ability believe it or not we do put thought into it yeah yeah <laughs> even though it's like xenosaga episode two and pong we're like we'll find the connective tissue somewhere here you press buttons in both games today was such an impossible task we're just like let's just do it all let's do it all baby yeah, yeah, like, we just had a really big list and Stephen was like do we push some stuff the next week i was like yeah no <laughs> what else are we do doing it all now like, what else are we doing? <laughs> it's snowing baby let's do it all it's snowing it's uh we're recording this at least in the states it's thanksgiving weekend weirdly i i had a bunch of days off and i i just forced myself to go outside because i was like if i stay inside i will just play video games literally the whole time so i i, I forced myself outside because i feel like that's usually what i do on days off i was like I, I should like go see a movie or like go take pictures around manhattan or something so i did that and honestly that was really nice but um it does mean that i didn't beat one of the games that we're going to talk about today which i probably could have beaten if i had stayed home now that i'm thinking about it. i'm glad you did something else though you know we, we got variety is the spice of life absolutely i saw napoleon weird movie it's a comedy didn't know that <laughs> not even a bit <laughs> not even a bit uh I, I i think that playing the joker has completely warped joaquin phoenix's perception of every other character he's gonna play forever. <laughs> I, th I, th I think when you play the joker there's no coming back from that and that's what happened to him why didn't napoleon look at the camera and go what me worry and then like <laughs> and then invade russia kind of, yeah, <laughs> jesus <laughs> What was the other movie you saw? We got a, we got a mouthwash after that one. I saw The Holdovers. It was a beautiful movie by Alexander Payne, director of The Descendants and Sideways, one of Paul Giamatti's best roles ever. Oh, I love Paul Giamatti. Great way to start the day. I saw it in the beginning of the day. It was freezing out and the movie takes place in the wind. It was good. It was a good time. You want to talk about video games though instead? Yeah. Don't add, don't add that this is my fault. You're the one who brought these two up. <laughs> What, me worry? All right. All right. Uh, there's a game you and I both have played. This is a game that came out a few months ago, but I feel like it's been getting a lot of conversation around it, uh, which is fitting for the theme of the game. Also fitting, you and I both played this independently from one another, wordlessly. We didn't We didn't talk to each other about playing this. We both just played it. Yeah, I also, I had purchased it like a couple of days ago and then like 20 minutes after like entering my, my credit cards, like security code, someone added me in the Discord and was like, you should play Chances scenario and i'm like buddy i'm one step ahead of you <laughs> i beat you again do communication uh anyway <laughs> it's chance of scenario 
It's Chance of Sonar. This is developed by Rundisk and published by Focus Entertainment. Uh, it is a game that is very much... The, the presentation reminds me a lot of that game Sable that you and I played a couple years ago. That yeah. We love kind of like very thin line work, very vibrant, warm colors. Mobius adjacent. Mobius adjacent, the famous like desert sci-fi uh, French artist. So... Basically, the the pitch of the game is that it operates largely like a point and click where you play as this hooded character navigating this environment um, that I think is based or possibly is the Tower of Babel or like it's it's something equivalent to that. Yeah, that's that's been my read. Yeah. yeah. And uh, basically the whole game, you have to navigate this environment and like classic point and click style find keys for locks, find information to guide you in the right way. All the language, whether it's written or spoken, is is a made-up language for the game. It's all just sort of in glyphs and symbols that match no existing language. So the game's premise is you have to slowly but surely figure out through context clues and through you know, just your own intuition, what all these words mean. And then slowly you'll unlock the language and be able to navigate the environment more confidently. It's kind of hard. Like it sounds very ethereal. And I feel like this is such a cool idea for a game and could have so easily been like the most obtuse, unplayable thing ever. (laughs) Yeah. I think they really purposely keep the like dialogue simple. So a light spoiler, but the game basically opens And the first thing you see is a lever that opens and closes a door. And there are, you know, there's symbols on that lever that basically, like, if you push the lever up, you can maybe imply that it might mean up or down. It might mean, like, closed or open, locked or unlocked. Right. And you have a journal where the game keeps track of all the different glyphs and symbols you've encountered. You can just freely type in what you think it is. And then one of the best design choices in the game is that whenever you see that symbol or glyph again, the game will like put what you wrote in your journal like over that word. Yeah, I love I love it. And what's really, really challenging, but also really illuminating is like sometimes you'll find a a word that is like on a mural or on a device like the lever that opens and closes the door and you'll think one thing. And then you'll meet a character who like says it out loud and you're like, oh, I was totally wrong. Right. Yes. You know, like I thought one word meant like uh, rewards, but it meant like follow, you know, stuff like that where it's just like. Yeah, that's that's actually the, the one that you're bringing up is the first instance of that that I had also where there, there's a little character who is uh, it seems like a kid and is like running around this abbey or I, I, I think it's like trying to sneak you into the abbey, if I'm not mistaken. But. Anyway, says what I assumed was was follow me, you know, and just kind of like gestures like towards themselves and then runs away. And I was like, oh, OK, so it's like, follow me. Like I, I should follow and, and, and see where they are. And then I, I started to realize that over the course of like continuing to follow them around, that we were like backtracking and looping through places that we had already been. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And I was like, oh, my God, we're playing hide and seek. It's not follow me. It's fine. This is a kid who wants yeah. to play hide and seek. And that was the first like holy shit jimmy neutron brain blast moment of the video game for me (laughs) because i i had it as you mentioned in my notes i had i had written down that that word meant follow and not find it's so cool and and there's another there's another moment uh in the abbey as well sorry this is i don't think quite a spoiler i won't i won't finish the puzzle for you i promise but there's a bunch of statues where um it, it says something to the effect of like god is always watching or like 
you know, God has something. And there's and there's one statue where um, it's like God's big eye. And then uh, there's two hands wrapped around a bunch of people. And I was like, God holds us like, I don't I don't know. And I just had that word as holds for like an hour of playing the game before realizing that I could have done something way earlier in the game had I realized what that word actually was instead of holds, which so cool. It's so cool. I yeah. think I think my one my one little gripe. I'll just bring this one up uh, at the top, and then we can continue praising the game. My one gripe of the game is that I'm having a hard time really knowing how to progress in a lot of cases. And it's not it's not even like it's not even like oh the puzzle is too hard, you know. And I'm just like sitting here trying to solve a puzzle because that I'm fine with. Like if if I if I'm just stuck on a puzzle, I'm stuck on a puzzle. But the game goes from opening lever opening and closing levers and kind of having like a more railroaded structure to like following this kid around and playing hide and seek with him to then being in this abbey which is a bunch of different directions with a bunch of different places and it was kind of unclear to me what puzzles i even needed to solve to progress or like how to even make it past that point but besides that i think this game is amazing like i i I just i just think it like fumbles a little bit on on pointing you in the direction you need to be going but honestly i think part of the beauty of the game and i'm sure this is all intentional it's just like your curiosity is going to get the better of you and you're going to want to solve every puzzle anyway and by the time you solve all the puzzles then eventually the path forward will kind of present itself to you but there was there was like a good hour and a half where i was just like i i think i've solved everything i don't know where to use all of these words that i've figured out yeah what does help a little bit is like so you have your journal where you can write in what you think a word means um and then as you uncover like a certain usually it's like three or four words Uh, the character will draw in their journal and you'll see like a really beautiful illustration of like a character like pointing to themselves and you're like okay maybe that means like me or myself right and they kind of group them and like okay like there are three or four symbols like on this page of the journal and if you guess all of them correctly the game will like mercifully just be like yes you're right those are what the words mean yes it's actually fairly generous with like synonyms like if you're close to one of them, they'll be like, yeah, here, here it is. Like <laughs> it actually meant this, but like you, you're on the right track. Right. Um, which I think is, is nice. Cause another pitfall would have been like, I, you know, pluralized this by accident and it said I was wrong or right. like yeah. needing like the exact word would have made it like you would assume you were wrong, even if you were like actually like 99% there. So I think all of that is like really well done, but I do agree. I think the game opens up maybe like a half hour sooner than maybe it, it could have. Cause I think like you're really free to go in any direction. And, and like you, I, I don't know what I should be prioritizing. Um, right. So I'm really just kind of like trying to learn as much about the language as possible. And I actually have like pages ahead of where I initially was that I've like totally confirmed, but I'm still trying to figure out like the second volume of language, which is kind of funny. Another thing the game does that I think is really fascinating and I'm kind of scared by is that they introduce another language fairly early on. So like one of the things and one of the moments of storytelling that I find really effective is like early on you pass by all these murals that kind of show like what I assume is like the religious origin of this civilization. Mm -hmm. And then there's a person nearby playing 
like some type of card game that shows all the different like members of society. Yeah. And basically the game is just you draw a card, they draw a card and like one of the cards will beat the other and you get a point. So just by playing that game, you can infer like, oh, this member of society is like more powerful than this member of society. Yeah, it's it's literally like a card game based on the class system that exists in the right. world. And it's like <laughs> and, and what you realize over the course of playing it is like, oh, I'm at the bottom of this list. <laughs> exactly. So it's like a brilliant moment where you're simultaneously learning the language, but you're also learning like where you fit into the world yourself. Yeah. And right next to it, there's like a bunch of guards by this locked gate and a bunch of people like seemingly complaining. Uh, I actually haven't fully figured out what they're saying, <laughs> but yeah, I can yeah. infer they're not happy. Um, but the guards are speaking in a different language. And from what I know about the game, there is like, I think four total languages like as you get higher in this tower i imagine each member of society has their own language which is really cool and so confident of the game to do because like <laughs> this is such a hard thing to pull off with one language never mind four it might sound daunting but it actually does like reset the stakes a bit and it can kind of linguistically explore like sentence structure like maybe i don't know this yet but maybe the other languages don't follow like the same because it's, it's it's not one-to-one. Like a lot of times when you unlock words, characters will be like, you, me, unlock door kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. like in German, for example, usually the verb is at the end of the sentence. If you're talking in past tense, formally at least, I wonder if that's how the other language works. You know, stuff like that, where I'm like actually excited to learn these fake languages. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the success of the game that they make this a fun action. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I, I think I think that last point is 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 really key for me at least is is starting to realize the structure of the language more than just what like the glyphs translate to directly there are certain things like if somebody says me me or like i i like sometimes means we like all of us you know like referring to everybody or alternatively there's one moment i don't i don't want to super give away but it just reminded me so much of learning the language in fez in a way where it's like specifically the number system in fez i think is really interesting um and it's something that i always think of and refer back to in games like this but there's a there's a moment where i realized that i could use words that i had already figured out as the basis to understand other words in this game where it's like once i figured out the word for i don't know fire hypothetically this i'm just making this up off the top of my head but once i figured out the word for fire i realized how I could then modify that glyph to make the word for candle, like something that contains fire, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't want I don't want to spoil too much for you if you haven't gotten there yet. But like those kinds of moments were like, oh my God. And suddenly it was like, not only could I figure out my way around, but I could figure out like eight different words in my notebook all simultaneously and like go through two pages of the of the like actually locking in, kind of like uh, Return of the Oberdin when you like can lock in exactly how you think somebody died and it's like, yeah, cool. Like then I was like, oh, cool. I can I can like knock out two pages of things Um, just because I had figured out this one way that they were like almost conjugating words. Yeah. I also think if you pay attention to the like just visual symbols of the words, you can start to infer what other ones mean as well. Or like there's a word that clearly is like people and then you'll see a common symbol for like you can almost see the combinations of words. I'm trying not to spoil it, but you can see combinations of words when those symbols are put together. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this is like, because it weirdly too keeps reminding me of German, where like in German, a lot of words are like two prior words put together. 
So like refrigerator is der Kühlschrank, which means like the cold closet, basically. Mm. So like you can kind of do that in this game where it's like the house of the dead too or whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, you know what I mean? But like, I think that's like the fact that the game lets you discover on like your own strengths as a player too yeah. is miraculous. I, I think it's, it's easy. Like to be honest, like I, I love puzzle games. The premise of this sounded really cool, but I wasn't sure if it was like fully for me. I sometimes find this element of like organic discovery to be maybe potentially overwhelming or a little hit or miss. Like I love tunic. I think that game shows like, I would much rather have an hour where I'm lost than have the game like depending on the intention of the game. But overall, if the game is going for like a sense of discovery and awe in the setting, I would rather get lost but have those moments of organic discovery than be like strung along thoughtlessly. Mm. But there's obviously a balance there. And I think sometimes if a game leans too obtuse, it can be more frustrating than enjoyable. Yeah, and that was right. my main concern with this game was, is this going to feel like I had to keep like an Excel spreadsheet nearby just to remember like what all these things are. And the game makes it, I don't say it makes it easy, but it, there's a lot of really clever UI and they make it very like seamless to, to find these discoveries on your own. Yeah. You know, it's not handholdy in terms of the mechanics. It just handholdy in terms of like the organization of information, right. which I think is really valuable. Yeah. I think one recommendation I'll make if you dear listener are interested in this game is um, I would recommend playing it on the switch or maybe on steam deck or PC specifically. I just wonder. I, so playing it on the switch is, is wonderful because it makes use of the touchscreen if you're playing in handheld mode so you can like tap on a symbol and actually type in what a word means or what you think a word means which is nice to, to be clear you don't need to be typing in what you think the word means uh to like solve all the puzzles and stuff but it does make the game easier in the same way strange horticulture it was a lot easier to like write down what each of the plants do individually instead of just being like i'm gonna hold 400 different plants in my head and what they all mean and what they all look like the ability to type that stuff in is really helpful same thing here it's like it's more helpful to make use of that function that they put in this video game. But I do think it would be harder to make use of that function if you're just playing with a controller on like Xbox or PS5, for example. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I've been playing on Steam Deck and I found it to be really seamless. It helps that all the words are very short. Like, yeah, usually they're very, at least so far, I'm sure eventually I'll have to learn like parking permit or something where it's just like <laughs> a longer, more complex idea. Yeah. But like I uh, double cheeseburger. Yeah, exactly. with fries. <laughs> so far, it's been like places ideas concepts mm -hmm. and and also because there's like an in-game keyboard because that's something that is kind of iffy on the steam deck when a game requires like the virtual keyboard mm -hmm. it can sometimes cause issues this game like has a keyboard like in the game itself so you don't have to like do the steam deck shortcut of uh, that's interesting i'm playing on switch and it just pops up the like switch keyboard which is great it might be i mean it has a different look because with any game on Steam Deck, if you hit Steam and X, it will bring up the keyboard, Yeah, uh, which is really nice. But sometimes it like confuses the game. If that's not like a part of it, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it, it works. It works great on Steam Deck. I think having this handheld feels good. Yeah, it's a really great handheld game. Yeah, that, that's how I've been playing it exclusively. Yeah, it was really good in bed the other day when it was really cold. It was just like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to curl up under the covers and uh, try and read this book. <laughs> yeah. 
I just think this has been a weirdly good year for puzzle games. It's interesting to see like in a, in a year like 2023 that's full of amazing games, what genres are really prevalent. And it's like horror, retro RPGs, and puzzle games are like having the time of their life right now. <laughs> and I, I love to see that. Meanwhile, I think the new Call of Duty is like the worst reviewed Call of Duty. <laughs> in like a decade or something you know everything has its place but about time i'll say it about time enough cod we can have like a year without cod you know i'm looking i'm actually looking at my game of the year list at the moment i have 46 games on this list and i think only one of them is a first person shooter yeah to be to be fair that's like a genre i i like usually don't like very much with some glowing exceptions i think like i love titanfall 2 and i loved overwatch and and splatoon I'm definitely more amenable to that as a as a genre, but um, man, not 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 a big year for it this year. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't even think about that. Anyway, I really love Chances Sonar. I think it's a hard game to talk about because it's like inherently going to spoil it. If you're like, I made the coolest discovery that now you can't make yourself. Yeah, um, yeah, that's exactly the problem with talking about it on the show. It's like yeah. I, I want so desperately to talk about all of the moments that I, I think make this a game worth playing. And it, I, it's like almost impossible to do. It's just very pretty. I will say, though, like, I think it's one of the best puzzle games I've played in recent memory, which is saying a lot because, you know, there's a lot of great ones that have come out this year. And it it just makes you feel like a genius, you know, even though it's like this person's literally pointing to themselves and saying a word. And of course, it means me. (laughs) But I'm like, yes, I figured it out. Like, I think that's another sign of a good puzzle game is like if they can make any discovery, regardless of how hard it was, feel like a big eureka moment. uh, This game is full of that. And I think it's also just a really like thoughtful exploration of language in general and like what can be communicated through very simple words outside of just the meaning. But like we're getting, you know, cultural context. We're getting like societal structure from these words. We're getting religious ideas. Yeah. You know, like I think it's it's really, really cool to see a game like fully embrace the power of language in this way. Totally. Yeah. It's um what what I think is interesting, it's probably worth mentioning. I, you already brought up Tunic. Like this is definitely not the first game to do stuff like this. Like another game I really loved this year, uh, Venba has almost a similar thing going on where it's like you're trying your best to through context clues figure out how recipes are supposed to continue onwards. Yeah, yeah. For context, like the recipes books will be like torn or like in a language the character doesn't understand. And yeah. I think what I loved about that game, which I did play after you brought it to the show, uh, is like there is a point where I was thinking about prior recipes to do new ones. Yes. Where I'm like, oh, I know, ex- I know. Ex- and that's like really how learning cooking feels, you know, is yeah, like absolutely. you are drawing from past experience and improvising when things don't go your way. Totally. If you can cook an egg, you can make uh, <laughs> beef stroganoff. Simple ingredients, locally sourced, cook well. That simple. Right. Let's have it. Two eggs. Keep it off the heat. We always bring up Gordon Ramsay's perfect scrambled eggs like every <laughs> six months. It's like permanently in my brain. Yeah, that's the only ad that we have on the show. <laughs> anyway. Gordon Ramsay has a permanent ad placement in this podcast. He does. I love this game. I'm really, really glad I checked it out. Like, I, Look, we're two people. <laughs> with full-time jobs we do not have the time to play everything that could possibly qualify for game of the year i think the fun of that episode and that challenge is like really reflecting on the year and, and kind of discovering our own taste and like you know i i do try to check out as much as possible and like venture outside of my comfort zone and i'm really glad i made time for this game because i think it's like very special and absolutely worth celebrating um so like while i think it's Impo- like there's always going to be regrets like oh i wish i got to that this year but like 
I am very grateful that I made time for this, like specifically in the timeline we're currently in where Godi is in like a few weeks. Yeah. It's like the perfect length and the perfect idea for like a last minute contender. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that's that's always how this is going to shake out every, every single year. Actually, our friend of the show, uh, Tamar Hussein, uh, posted on threads just yesterday as, as of the time of this recording. He said something to the effect of Shadow Gambit is one of the most overlooked games of the year and should qualify for everybody's goatee list. And I was like, that's the first I'm hearing about this. It came out in August and I'm just yeah. I, I just need to resign myself to the fact that I probably will not get to that game, unfortunately. That's why we have games of the other years, you know? Absolutely. And also the show. We can play whatever we want. We whenever. can play whatever we want, baby. We're not tied if, down. If you doubted that, look at the lineup of this episode. <laughs> Man, bring up the description. <laughs> this is the bewildering grace episode of just like <laughs> random effects happening. More on Octopath later. Um, cool. That's all I have currently. Want to wrap up and move on to our next game? Yeah, let's get the fuck out of here. By chance of Sonar, you're a good video game. Highly, highly recommend it. Anything we said like makes you even curious, check it out. I think you'll have yeah. a great time with it. It's good. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, welcome back. Hello. To the Tower of Babel. Oh, happy to be here. Happy to be what here. What the heck is everybody talking about? <laughs> me, 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 <laughs> me, me. It's always me. about me. <laughs> I wish there was an achievement you could unlock in that game where if you wrote that every single glyph meant me. <laughs> oh, now I want to make everyone say, hey, I'm walking here. I'm going to do that as soon as, I'm, as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> Secret ending. Game beaten. <laughs> <laughs> the, the New Jersey ending. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the Tower of Secaucus. Yeah. <laughs> why, why is Secaucus now every episode it comes up? <laughs> People want the content. They want the Meadowlands content. Yeah. yeah we we asked what uh, what we should be doing. Uh, I think it was a couple episodes ago. We ended the episode by just asking, like, "Hey, what do you want us to do that we're not doing on the show?" And everyone said, "Bring up Secaucus every episode." <laughs> unanimously not a single person said anything different i will just pop in and say uh honestly we got a lot of really helpful and encouraging feedback from that so just thank you to everyone who like replied to that question in earnest <laughs> i'm sorry I'm, I'm a chaos agent on this episode you're, you're trying to be very nice <laughs> no 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 i just i i see an opportunity and i go for it whether that's good or bad that's my energy wow. you know that's good. It's a roll of the dice, Steven. Yeah, dude, Baldur's Gate. Dude, visible dice rolls. <laughs> I want to hear an update on Mario RPG. Actually, yes. I will say, so I still haven't purchased the remake yet. However, I did rediscover that I have an original copy for the Super Nintendo. That's amazing. And I have my uh, SNES analog. Um, so oh, I just yeah. tested it to make sure it works and it does. So I'm Whoa. Like, feel like I, I lucked out here, you know, in terms like, I definitely want to check out the remake, but I'm like, I could also just play the original on this sleek device. Yes. Another game that I recently picked up, original cartridge, is A Link to the Past. I oh feel like God. you and I have yet to finally have our Link to the Past moment. I it's hover like over years. that game all the time. Yeah, and I think we've been doing enough, not to set it up, but I just feel like I, I at least want to like play more of it because I feel like I have a very academic view of it currently and I want to see if I can find a personal mm. attachment to it the same way I have for like pretty much every other Zelda yeah to varying degrees right. so just want to touch on that but I want to hear more about the remakes I know you got further in you were very smitten by it last week and I want to hear how it's been going I loved it yeah I, f I feel like every once in a while I, I love a game so much that I just kind of like babble endlessly uh, you know uh into the microphone just like a bunch of random points and and uh there's nothing really cohesive. That's kind of how I felt last week. I, I will say I am really close to finishing this game. And part of me was like, do I finish it for the show? But then I decided to, as I mentioned, go out and do other things this weekend. So I didn't. But I am six of the seven stars in, which is 
pretty tight. And I just continue to love this game. I just think that this game is really amazing. I have, I think, the full party, unless there's some like secret person who I don't know about who's going to join later if like Sephiroth joins or something. Like, not there yet. Chrono Cross cameo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah just the whole cast of Chrono Cross, all 100 characters <laughs> are also unlockable. But uh, I, I just think that this is this is a game that over, over the course of my playing it, I kind of didn't even realize how much I was settling into like playing it as if it was like my comfort binge watch in some ways. I, I just find that every time I sit down and, and turn on the switch, like I hover over all the things that I'm playing for the show hypothetically. And then I just end up playing Super Mario RPG instead, which is definitely a sign that I really love this game. I, I think there are two angles that we could talk about this game through. One of them is just like the whole like remake versus uh, remaster thing, you know, which I, I think you could talk in circles to death. And we kind of have about the different game, especially this year of all years, there have been so many great ones on kind of both ends of the spectrum i think you have like your resident evil 4 remakes versus your metroid prime remastered things like that i think it's kind of the spectrum i think in terms of what this game is bringing to the table as a as a i'm gonna i would consider this closer to a remaster than a remake this is like i think the best remaster that's ever happened i I just think like sonically the music is unbelievable in this game like they're they're taking I, I went and listened to some of the original compositions of this stuff and like it was great in the original to be clear it was already like amazing music we we talked a little bit last week about like the composer and just all of her great work but some of the new orchestrations of that stuff just add so much life and being able to like hear it in stereo with real instruments and stuff is like mind-blowing i have had so many moments where i've just left the game on in the background and just like did something else or like literally read a book while listening to the music of super mario rpg in the back (laughs) because i'm just like it's a really good soundtrack so into it it's amazing But outside of that, I, th- I think this is like, I, I-, I brought this up last week and, and I think I kind of want to double down on it a little bit. I think this is probably my favorite of all of the Mario RPGs that we've played. I think it really got so much right on the first outing. And now having played through, as I mentioned again last week, like I've played through all of these different games in such a strange order that now going back to the like genesis of all of this and and. I'm starting to get a new frame of mind around Mario and the RPG genre where I'm like, oh, they've been chasing the the dream of this game ever since. Like Paper Mario, as we talked about on our first Paper Mario bonus with AJ. Hi, AJ. It's AJ's birthday the day we're recording this. Happy Happy birthday, birthday, AJ. AJ. That game started as Super Mario RPG 2 originally, right? That was that was initially going to be like, okay, we're we're staking out on our own. Square's not helping us this time, but we want to make another one of these. And they're going to change the art style and all this different stuff to kind of, you know, make it a little bit more Nintendo-y and then decided, okay, we're going to turn this into a completely new IP technically. But even just even just that sitting in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, man, like even that game, I think, misses some of the tenants that make this game so wonderful to me. Like there there is something about the idea that there are like all of these completely new and original characters that Square just came up with that is really working for me in a way that it almost doesn't when you replace them with like Goombas and Baboms and stuff. Not that I don't like those characters because I do. I mean, as as if you've listened to those episodes, we have like lengthy power rankings of how much we love those <laughs> characters, which we wouldn't do unless we really cared about them. But I think it's also telling that our, our favorite ones were characters like Vivian who were like fully unique yes. to the game. Yeah, you know. absolutely. That's a great point. Yeah. And and 
the the two big additions to the party in this game are Mallow, who you meet right in the beginning, who is like one of the first characters that, that pops up um, in the first town that you go to, who immediately is like, I'm a little tadpole. I'm a frog. And and like the flavor text that shows up as soon as he joins the party is like, Mallow doesn't look anything like a frog. <laughs> it's like the game is acknowledging. It's like if, if you're asking the question, you are correct. Mallow doesn't look like a frog. Mallow looks like a cloud wearing pants. Uh, and all of his skills are, believe it or not, thunder and lightning base so uh surprise surprise but the course of the game has been fascinating following mallow's journey like i wasn't expecting to get like a full mallow backstory and and uh and like conflict resolution but mallow goes through the journey of like you you visit the the tadpole pond where uh he grew up and there's like an old wise frog who lives like on a little island in the middle of this tadpole pond who is i think just like raising all of these tadpoles who like as soon as you meet him is like i need to pull mallow aside i need to tell him something hey man you're not a frog it's like <laughs> sorry, sorry to spoil that for you dear listener but like it's not surprising <laughs> it's not it's not a big twist but it's like you fell from the sky one day and we just raised you as one of our own. But that hypothetically means that your parents are out there somewhere. And like a not small chunk of the game is spent like seeking out Mallow's parents. Great stuff, like great storyline. The other big character who uh, I had like kind of just met when we recorded last was Gino. Yeah. Who uh, is just kind of this like weirdly legendary Nintendo character at this point in some ways. Like Gino, Gino for Smash has been, you know, just like rallied around. I think every time a Smash game has come out ever since the original and like the thought of adding new characters, everyone has always wanted Gino in there. And and first of all, I understand why, because Gino's moveset in Super Mario RPG feels like so, so apt for a Smash inclusion. Like the um, the like standard attack that Gino has is like a finger gun thing. So it's like, you know, you, you could see like almost Fox's laser uh, laser gun kind of thing. And uh, Gino also has almost like a Kamehameha, like Dragon Ball Z thing going on. Like there are just so many moves that seem like they would map really well to Smash. So I get it now. I'm not going to join that camp of people, but I get it. Um, sure. But Gino is a doll who is imbued with life via like a kind of cosmic fairy entity uh, in some ways and essentially is like your ex exposition vessel for the like larger theme of the game, which is the the seven stars that you're trying to collect need to be placed back in Star Road, which I'm I'm headcanoning as Rainbow Road from Mario Kart. Mm, um, yeah. But anyway, it's it's Star Road, which if those seven stars are then uh, replaced up there, if you can if you can bring them back up to Star Road, uh, it means as people it means that people's wishes can be granted and like that's just a fun idea in general i like gino as this very stoic like very final fantasy ass like cloud strife almost energy oh yeah uh, like yeah. really really brings like weird gravitas to this game that is so deeply silly but i just i love his inclusion but i have found that the inclusion of mallow and gino also is adding a lot of characterization to the other members of your party and the other people that you meet and just the rest of the mushroom kingdom and the world in general like i think it's so interesting to now look at this game as the frame of reference for what all of these characters personalities became in the future like this is the first time as far as i can remember this is the first time really where a lot of these characters are given any kind of personality like before this game mario was just the guy you play as in mario yeah and he's like kind of funny and kind of wacky and weird and he doesn't say anything in this game but like you can tell he's got a lot of personality he's got a lot of life and that's like the first time you're really seeing that i feel like the first game and this is maybe a bit of a stretch but this is something we talked about in our mario all-stars episode where i feel like the original mario 2 in the in the u.s that was the doki doki panic reskin oh yeah that to me is the beginning of nintendo 
Nintendo giving a sense of character to at least the other characters. Right. But that's the game where it's like, oh, Luigi's like the one that jumps like weirdly and goes higher. And then, you know, Peach can flow. And like, it's not necessarily character, but I think even by distinguishing them mechanically, the player can like separate them. It's not just a color swap because you're player two. Yes. Like Luigi has a distinct difference. Yes. You start to build your own perceptions of who those people are based on the fact that Luigi can jump a little bit higher than Mario can. Yeah. Then we get to the GameCube era, which we'll cover in depth soon. And they're like, Luigi's the coward. And I'm like, how dare you (laughs) do our guy this dirty? Yes. But like this, this is the first game, as far as I can tell, where Bowser is like kind of a bumbling idiot, like funny man, you know, like Bowser is very much the comic relief of this game, believe it or not. Um, And the whole, the whole deal is that there's, there's a big evil character named Smithy who drops like a giant sword into Bowser's castle. uh, And Bowser is like on a, god quest to retrieve his castle he's like amassing an army to try and you know march back and take take smithy out and take the sword out and whatever whatever and over the course of the game the army all just kind of like abandons him and goes awol which is so funny and then bowser is like kind of in this place where he has to work with mario but will only do it under the condition that mario pretends that he is joining bowser not the other way around which is so funny. It's like such a great idea and it plays so well into the version of Bowser that we see like even even in the movie, like the most recent movie that came out. Like that's that's a Jack Black as Bowser move also. And that started in this game. And and I think it's just having those kind of aha moments over and over and over again that's one of the many many things propelling me through this game. I also just think it has the the best combat of all of these for me. Like I think I was going to ask if that if that was also like it sounds like overall the reasons why you'd put it above the rest is just sort of the fully realized fantasy world of it all and like being the least dependent on the Mario aspect of it. Yeah. But yeah, combat wise, what's working for you? Yeah, I I think one of the bigger things for me is just like the different weapons that you can equip to everybody and how that changes their movesets a whole bunch. So like I have at least found on my end that uh, I enjoy certain kinds of weapons equipped to certain characters. So for example, like Mario, Mario has a uh, boots that he can put on which allow him to like jump on kind of anyone he wants or alternatively you can get like a hammer that you can um that you can hit enemies with or you can get like a koopa shell that you kind of throw into the air and then kick at somebody and i have found that the koopa shell is the one that i gravitate towards the most and even though it is like technically weaker than some of the other weapons that i have for mario i'm still using that because i'm able to time the button press of that attack better than any other one so it, like it kind of balances out in the end for me bowser i he has two like amazing amazing moves moves that that I love one of them that you can equip is just the ability to pick up Mario and throw him at the enemy um, and if you like time that button press right he throws Mario at the enemy Mario bounces off and then Bowser catches him and then throws him again which is so funny I love duo moves I and mean, that's one of the reasons I love Chrono Trigger so much yeah and that sounds like a very Chrono Trigger thing but it's also special when it's like just a couple characters get them too like yeah. uh, that reminds me in, in Final Fantasy 9 uh, two of my favorite characters in the game and maybe even in maybe even in the series are Steiner and VV Steiner is like what if C3PO was like a hard ass knight and like constantly this was like pots and pans sound effect as he ran about mm-hmm. demanding order and VV is like kind of almost like an existential exploration of the like de facto black mage character in Final Fantasy 1 like that design yeah. of like the hood and the two glowing eyes really cool stories for both of them and Steiner like he loves the princess it's his duty to protect her 
kind of hates everyone else, at least early on, but loves Master Vivi. Yes. He calls him Master Vivi. And they get a move together where like Vivi can cast a spell on Steiner's sword. And it just adds so much to like the the in-between moments of story. Mm. Like the fact that Mario and Bowser sworn, you know, enemies have this duo move together. That's still kind of Bowser in control uh, is beautiful. I love. It's a very simple thing, but I think it goes a long way. I also just not not to stray too far away from combat. We'll get back to that. But I also just think that this game sets up a world for the Mushroom Kingdom in which it seems to me like Mario is not worried about Bowser literally at all. Like Bowser just like kidnaps <laughs> Princess Peach all the time, but it's almost kind of rote at this point to the extent that Mario has built his house directly next door to Bowser's castle and is not in any way fearful for his life or like like the the perpetuity of his house being there like his house is just right next door and at any moment he can just kind of walk out the front door go down the street beat the shit out of bowser save the princess and then go home and go back to sleep which i just think is very funny but so you you have all these like great moves you have the ability to you know time your button inputs so you can uh so you can do double damage or like definitely crit or things like that um you can also time the button presses to like in all the other mario rpgs you can kind of like block from attacks and things like that which you know varying degrees of success i think needing to learn every single enemies every single attack is definitely a little bit much i kind of wish the timing was a little bit more a little bit less specific to each individual enemy's move i wish it was like oh if i'm fighting a goomba i i know exactly when to press the a button instead of like i need to watch the goomba to see which of the three goomba attacks they're gonna do before i hit the a button that's like a little bit too much information to hold in my head all at once but on top of all of that you also have all the magic stuff which is really great i think like m- all of malo's moves which like attack an entire group with thunder is like really cool and interesting. But if you can time all of this stuff well enough, it does two wonderful things. One of them is it builds up this meter that's very wonderfully visible on the left of the screen, which I don't think was in the original, which shows you a bunch of buffs that you get. So depending on which character you have in your party, as you continue to nail the timing over and over again, it will show you like a combo meter and it will show you like, okay, you have Gino in your party, which means that I I think Gino in your party raises the defense. If you have Mario in your party and you continue to nail a bunch of timing, it raises the attack, things like that, which is very cool. So you are not only trying to do this to do more damage and take less damage, but in doing so, in engaging with that mechanic, you are also just kind of like buffing yourself passively, which is really great. It also fills up this gauge on the bottom left of the screen, which when it hits 100%, you can press the minus button on on the Switch. Uh, or this is only on Switch. You can press the minus button and it will do like a special move, like a special trio move. And that will also change depending on which three characters you have in your lineup at any given time, which is really fun. So I'm starting to get into this headspace where I'm like, when I fill up that that gauge 100%. I'm swapping the characters out to best make use of which of their special moves I think will work best on the enemy that I'm going up against. Like, oh, am I fighting, you know, one solitary boss? Am I fighting a big group of enemies? Is this boss a big group of enemies, for example? Like, okay, maybe I want to use the move where Bowser and Mario throw Gino into the air and then he, you know, rains down a bunch of stars. Or maybe I want the Bowser Peach Mario move where they uh, throw Bowser in his shell down at the boss and Peach throws 
throws a superstar at him. So he becomes like a superstar version of Bowser and just like wails on one enemy in particular. That kind of stuff adds a lot of depth to the combat that I kind of wasn't expecting from a game like this. Because I think this is supposed to be in a lot of ways, like a lot of people's first RPGs. Like this is supposed to be an entry point into the franchise. And I think it is not only that, but is also doing all of the things that I expect from games like Dragon Quest that I like praise and love as if it was like a religion. I, I just I think that this game is fucking great. All of that to say there's a bunch of side content that I thought I was going to kind of ignore to just make my way through the game. And I have found myself so engaged with things like there's a town you go to which is very Dragon Quest also, to be clear. There's a town you go to that's filled with all the enemies that you fight and they all just kind of like live peacefully amongst each other, which is really nice. But there's like everyone in the town is complaining about this one resident who lives there who's behind a locked door. And I'm like obsessed with figuring out what's behind that locked door. I'm sure it's like a secret boss or something. Like I'm sure there's something back there that's going to be really fun and cool. They have the only like black door in a in a town filled with blue doors like there's definitely something going on behind there and i know that there's going to be a way for me to get in there and i know there's going to be something to do when i'm in there and i'm so excited about it like that actually i wouldn't be surprised if that is like i mean it's not gonna be sephiroth because final fantasy 7 wasn't out yet but it's definitely gonna be like somebody weird um (laughs) i wonder yeah and that's that's fun like i just i love that shit and i love that there's so much of that stuff in this game so I'm like, I think nine hours into this game at this point. As I mentioned, I'm like kind of close to the end. If collecting all seven stars is how you beat the game, then like I'm technically close to the end. But I've just spent so much of that time going out and like doing all the weird stuff with um, there's there's like a there's a, a classical composer who lives in the tadpole pond named uh, Todovsky. And you can like play music for him and playing different music for him will give you different things. So I'm like trying to find all the different songs you can play for Todovsky. There's like all these different mini games that you can do to collect frog coins, which you can spend on different enchantments and like pieces of armor and and uh, accessories that will do things like increase the amount of XP you get like forever or increase the uh, amount of HP that the entire party has, things like that. There's just like so much to do in this game that feels really small it is a lot bigger than I'm anticipating. Yeah, and I wonder, I don't I don't know the story well enough at the top of my head to know that if there's like the classic, you know, twist in a Final Fantasy where you do the thing and then they're like, that's only the beginning, you worm, you know? Yes, that's kind of what I'm waiting for. I'm, w- I'm wondering if getting all seven stars is going to be the like... The beginning of the game. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so, though. I'm, I'm, I I remember hearing that this game is pretty short. You're inspiring me to go back to it because I, I didn't get very far. Like I, I've always liked this game, but I for whatever reason, whenever I played it, I kind of like bounced off a certain point. Maybe the remake would keep me there longer because I've only played the original. Mm. So maybe like what I'm most curious to find out is like, is there something about the original that was like, because I, I haven't played it in years. So like, I, I don't even like, I think I brought it to the show in passing very early on, but I kind of want to play both and see if I can like distinguish if there's something about the remake that is like sanding off the edges enough to, to be more immediately gripping. Yeah. I think that's kind of the big thing, especially as we're talking about Godi, I'm like trying to figure out if this game counts and I really have it in the no camp at the moment but i think when i'm done with it i'm gonna play a little bit of the original and if there is a huge like night and day difference between the two like if i feel very differently about one versus the other then i think there may be grounds to make the argument to potentially have it in the goatee list but at the moment from what i can tell and from listening to other people talk about it and from like reading reviews and stuff online it's sound it sounds to me like it is almost one-to-one it just looks yeah. and sounds better um and they've added like a couple little mechanics on the battle end that just make it a little bit like easier because it sounds like everything you're praising is like what i ideally want from a mario rpg and 
I think a lot of those elements do apply to Thousand Year Door as well. It's, it feels like Thousand Year Door is like halfway between Paper Mario and Super Mario RPG in terms of like yeah. what it's... But I think like Thousand Year Door is almost more interested in being like even separate from like the RPG. Like it, it's definitely interested in being an RPG, but I don't think it's interested in being like Final Fantasy. I think it wants to be kind of its own yeah. weird, unique entity. Um, that's what makes that game feel so special. Because it's it's making use of so much of the Mario stuff. Mm-hmm. I think I think in in a way that Square could have taken this on and just made a Mario Final Fantasy if they wanted to. You know, they, it could have just been that. But I think there are so many things, like even just the ability to jump in the overworld, right? I think is like really interesting and they make use of that in ways that work and don't work at times there are some platforming sections that are just a fucking nightmare if i'm being honest that's the irony is like every mario rpg has terrible platforming yes uh to varying degrees some of them are okay but god i do not miss timing the yoshi jumps like perfectly yeah that's in your door that was a nightmare but i like there's a moment i don't want to say where you go for those of you who haven't played the game but there's a moment where you need to climb up really 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 high and the way that you do that is by finding a secret block that um has one of those vines that goes into the air like from Mm. the original mario brothers and like what a fun moment that was you know to to find that and be like oh i have to climb into the sky now that's really exciting you know and just kind of like make your way up all those vines and it's moments like that where they keep they keep using stuff and like pastiche from mario games but in really clever and fun ways that that kind of just enhance the world and make the world feel like more real lived in and kind of take the the version of the mario universe that you have in your head and expand upon it in really fun ways that makes this game so so successful at what it's trying to do and i think i think that's where it just kind of levels itself up from just being nintendo went to square and asked for an rpg you know it's like they i know it's like silly to say because it's literally their job to do this but like they really thought about it they really thought about and applied it i think in ways that don't feel like cheap or weird but instead are like fun and additive to the greater like mario canon as much as there is one yeah i mean we said this we made this comparison last week but it does weirdly remind me so much of kingdom hearts we're like i think there's a version of kingdom hearts that was like turn-based and mickey was cloud which like (laughs) maybe would have ruled now that i say that out loud that might have been sick (laughs) i think i think kingdom hearts being its own thing and also being one of the like pioneers of action rpg combat honestly i think makes that series like be more than just these two series plus each other mm-hmm. um it's the same thing about like marvel vs. capcom 2 having it's like weird jazz soundtrack and and not really having levels based on either series and <laughs> just being like why are they all together what is this and it kind of becomes its own thing yeah you know i think the best collaborations like have that one plus one equals three logic to them yeah yeah which this game absolutely does um i will probably be done with it before we record the next episode i just i've just been really loving it and in all of my free time i want to be playing it which is why i spent the last two days outside of my house uh just so i wouldn't sit inside and just play mario rpg all day i've been smiling like a proud dad for most of that section just just for the (laughs) listener notes i i someone people listen to the backlog which i think you and i are both really happy about like we obviously the show will always be a bit of a time capsule the further back you go but like we want every episode to be you know re-listenable and like someone brought up the era where you weren't into rpgs and everyone was like that that's like bc era at this point Isn't that wild? Yeah. <laughs> before chrono trigger um <laughs> sorry if we did 
I don't. I'm going to speak this into a microphone, and it might change the future. I think I'm. I think I'm altering fate by saying this. I love this. Sign me up. Let's let's chrono cross this. I think if we did a games of all time episode, Chrono Trigger would like maybe be in my top five at this point. Yeah. What a religious experience that game was. It was amazing too, because I mean, we like I was confident you would like it enough. You know, when, when we choose a yeah. bonus that one of us hasn't played or neither of us have played, like we want to make sure like we're gonna like it enough to devote that much time to it. There are a couple bonuses we've done where we're actually like kind of iffy on the game, but we do it if there's like a conversation to be had or whatnot. But yeah, I, I was really happy and also like reminded of that game's strength because it's, it's one of those games where you like hear praise for it and see praise for it constantly it can almost become like so known of a thing that you kind of take it for granted yeah but like it really is that miraculous you know obviously not every game is for everybody i'm sure there are people out there who like don't connect to it and that's totally fine but i think if you're I don't know. I, I think that game could surprise you if you are like someone who is on the fence of enjoying the genre. I think it's weirdly enough, despite being from 95, I think it's one of the more approachable RPGs. Yeah. Um, just in terms of like how the mechanics work and the length of it and the story. And the it came out the year before Mario RPG, which is wild. Uh, yeah. Both games that I, I, I should note have the enemies in the overworld, uh, which I think is like, hey, if you're a person who doesn't like random encounter battles and you wish you could skip them, uh, both great games to check out if you're interested in the genre um you know what i just realized also 96 was wasn't that the year uh the n64 came out so was this like the last game for the super nintendo it was definitely later on it was like one of the last which i think kind of shows given how great it looks n64 um, 1996 yeah oh wow i thought it was 97 but yeah i uh i think i got my n64 in 97 oh my god and super mario 64 was a launch title for that which means yeah. that <laughs> which means mario 64 and mario rpg came out in the same year which is like mind-boggling <laughs> it's a good year for mario whoa i remember uh getting my n64 when i was seven and i got mario 64 and pilot wings which was like that kind of 3d tech demo game wow. magical time this is also a good year for mario again because mario rpg is out at the same time as another great mario game. <laughs> when it's not a good year for mario it's a good year for luigi you know that's what i've noticed <laughs> and a bad year for nintendo and, yes whenever luigi has a good year <laughs> nintendo has a bad year <laughs> look at the wii u and and the gamecube era and it's like both both commercially underperformed and luigi <laughs> had his moment in the sun he deserves better it's so funny yeah <laughs> um quickly can i just tease another rpg that i've been playing on the nintendo switch please that i honestly like i love that i could just sit here silently and have the time of my life this is great <laughs> just i'll just do I, a, I love rpg corner with brendan yeah this is awesome i'll just do a solo podcast yeah <laughs> is this um, thing on anyone here like leveling up <laughs> yes yes me me that's me my sleep number is 14 <laughs> i don't know what that means um <laughs> Come on, I, spill it. I've been playing um, Nino Kuni 2 Revenant Kingdom uh, a little bit. I, I'm like five or six hours in somewhere in that vicinity. So I'm still pretty early on. I, I want to play more of it before I talk about it like definitively. But I wanted to bring it to the show because you have played some of the original. I have also played some of the original. And I think you and I, despite liking a lot of what's going on there, had some grievances with it. It's worth mentioning if you don't know anything about Nino Kuni, the original one, it's level five who have made just so many amazing, amazing video games. Yeah. Teaming up with Studio Ghibli to make a big like rpg like a giant like it's kind of the dream it's the dream scenario yeah Joe Hishaishi is here doing the soundtrack 
as we said, Ghibli's doing not only the character design, but like some of the cutscene animation. And also like one of the s- most stunning world maps. So there's a moment in Nino Kuni 1 where like, you know, you, you walk out of the starting town and, and just see the world. And it's still one of the most beautiful things I've seen yeah. in a game. It's, it's amazing. It's a it's a cool game. And there, you know, I, I think it's a real hit or miss for a lot of people. And I think for you and I, at the time, at least that both of us played it, I played it way before we were doing the show. I played it on the PS3 um, and bounced off of it. But I was excited about it because of the Ghibli stuff. And I think you bounced off of it for different reasons, more related to the combat, which I think is one of the reasons a lot of people bounce off. I, I liked it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love Mr. Drippy, just for one, the weird creature with the lantern on his nose. King of the fairies. King of the fairies. Uh, and I think the actual like the premise of the combat is interesting where like it's not unlike pokemon where you as oliver are like gathering what i think they're called familiars or something i think they are called familiars in that game yeah and they're different creatures that level up it's pretty cool and it's also like an interesting hybrid of real-time combat nothing about it like got to me in a negative way i just sort of moved on like i didn't i didn't feel i think with rpgs of that size you either like play enough and you have a pleasant time and drop it or you like go all in right you know yeah it's hard to kind of find it in between you have your super mario rpg moment or you don't yeah i I, I will commend nino kuni one for having iced coffee be one of the curing items and like (laughs) i just really deeply related to that for some reason because i (laughs) i don't know if i share this but i only drink cold brew no matter what temperature it is. Yeah. If it's like freezing and it would be like a, like actually dangerous thing to drink a cold beverage, I'll fold. But I had iced coffee this morning and it's snowing. So like, yeah, get over it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm usually the same way. I had an iced coffee yeah. this morning. That game is pretty good. It's also available on Nintendo switch. It's always on sale. So if you're like interested yeah. in playing Nino Kuni one, go for it. I will say uh, just content warning. The game opens like very heavily with like themes of grief and death that may catch you wildly off guard. If you are looking at the box art yes, and assuming it's going to be so like, if you're looking for like, it is like overall like a cozy, fun, transportive game, but it does spend the opening hour or so like all about very heavy things. Yes. So I think I think that's one of the things before I even get into Nino Kuni 2. I think that's one of the things that I find most interesting about that game is from the top. And I, I remember you bringing this up on that episode. And I also clocked this when I first played it. But like from the top, that game seems to be really about something. And I don't really want to go too far into what that is for those of you who haven't played it you can go back and listen to our earlier episode where we talk about it for the first time but that that game seems to be centered around something and a lot of it is like grief and sadness and like how kids experience the world it seems like yeah Nino Kuni 2, Steven, I have no idea what this game <laughs> is going for thematically yet so let me just tell you how this game begins. This is this is the opening Please. of this game. And I'm sorry to spoil it for you, dear listener, but like you just need to hear this. The game opens with uh, a cutscene. Oh, actually, it's take a step back. Studio Ghibli did not work on this game. Um okay. they're they're not back. I think level five, they are accomplished enough in terms of their art direction that they are able to just nail the Ghibli of it all anyway. Like it still looks like they were involved even though they weren't so just just a heads up if you're here for the ghibli stuff technically they're not involved but it still looks a lot like they were joe hishaishi is back doing the soundtrack though which is great important yes really important some of the overworld stuff is just amazing um but anyway this game opens with a cutscene in which you see someone who is definitely the president i think of the united states they they don't they don't quite say but he sure does have an american accent or at least like in a, in a world of everybody else who has British accents, he is the only one who notably does not. And he is in a car with 
you know, it, it's kind of the like, uh, what, what are they? I almost called it a car parade, which is not the term. What is what is the term for like the the parade of cars that the president has? I have no idea. There's I a know, word for it. I know caravan. visually what you're talking about. Yes, there's caravan. like there's like a caravan of, of you know Secret Service members, you know, kind of flanking him, and they're going across this bridge into what looks like just kind of an amalgam of a bunch of American cities. Like they're going over. It looks so much like the Brooklyn Bridge going into what looks like Manhattan plus Chicago plus L.A. plus you know all these different places and you hear this like and the president looks out the window of his car and sees a missile flying overhead (laughs) and the city they're driving into gets nuked okay and the whole city blows up and this this shock wave of the nuke goes careening across the bridge the president's car goes flying through the air and it lands upside down on the bridge and he starts to try and climb his way out of the car and then I think dies. And when he wakes up, he wakes up in the world of Nino Kuni. <laughs> and immediately he runs into this little kid. Is he like himself still? Or He's he younger. He's like a younger version of himself. Oh, okay. Like he, he looks like himself, but he, he has like longer hair and like kind of tied back in a ponytail. He's not graying at all. He, he seems like he's like maybe in his 20s instead of being in his like 50s or 60s. Got it. Okay. Um, so he, he wakes up in this world, uh, runs into this kid who has cat ears. And the kid is like, there's something bad going on downstairs. And the president is like, I, I don't know where I am. I don't know who you are. Like, what's going on here? And the, and the kid and him are having kind of a standoff when a bunch of uh, mice like like mouse people show up and they try and kill this kid and the president pulls out his fucking gun and shoots (laughs) shoots the mouse people (laughs) and the kid is like what kind of magic is this (laughs) and it turns out that this kid is the king and you have you have been transported into the world of nino kuni ding dong dell which you might remember from the first game uh it's like a hundred or maybe a thousand years after the first one. I'm not really sure of the time lapse yet, but you, you show up in this kid's like quarters. He's supposed to be the king. He hasn't been coronated yet, but his, his father who was the king has passed away. And uh, like a, a council, like a round table of evil villainous, like animal people have decided to like throw a coup. So they are currently trying to kill this little kid to take control of the kingdom. Um, and the president is like, I'm going to save you. And you pick up a sword, but you also have your gun. And uh, that's how the game opens. You, you're trying to escape the castle with this kid. It's wild. I, it, I, we could talk more about the actual combat, I think, in like a later episode. We can get into it. It is way more of like a real time action game than the original. Way, way, way less of the turn based stuff. Than, you're, than you would remember from the first game. But every character has three melee weapons and one ranged weapon. And of course, the president's is, is his fucking gun that he brings from <laughs> the real world. How How is it working? I know we'll talk about it more next week, but like, are you enjoying it? Like, or do you just have to share? Because I this should be, I thought this should have like, raised some questions yes. or been discussed at all and just wasn't yeah at least like as far as i can tell yeah th- this game i from what i know of it it came out and i think there are some people who reviewed it really well and some people who really thought it was super disappointing and i don't know where i land at the moment i do know for those of you who are interested that uh you don't need to have played or finished the first game to play this one like they are they take place in a far enough distance from one another chronologically that they are very much holistically totally different stories so no worries there but am I enjoying it? I am enjoying it. I think my my one grievance is that I don't think it is great on the Switch. It like it runs pretty well, but not great. And I think the the game that it feels the most 
uh, it feels the closest in comparison to is Dragon Quest Eleven S Echoes oh. of Elusive Age Definitive Edition for Nintendo Switch. No longer available for Xbox Game Pass. What the fuck, Phil Spencer? It got longer. Yeah. <laughs> it got taken off Game Pass and somehow got longer. Somehow got longer. Um, It feels the most like it's going for that style of game in terms of like... Wh- what's going on graphically i mean like the akira toriyama art versus the like ghibli art you know it, all, not one-to-one obviously but they're kind of going after similar things in terms of like taking a really established art style and turning it into a 3d space when you're running around the open world areas it feels a lot like in dragon quest 11 but the game just like chugs a little bit and i think the graphics take a little bit more of a hit especially when i'm looking at what it looks like on say the xbox or the playstation there's definitely a little bit of like a loss in translation in terms of getting that art style to work fully on the switch i I just think the switch like loses a little bit of of the luster Um, yeah but it still plays like really well the combat is fun the soundtrack is amazing the story i I actually find the story interesting even though it seems to have dropped the like why is the president in this fantasy world thing entirely at this point (laughs) it was like okay well he just he just has a moment within the first hour where they escape from the castle and he's like i think i'm gonna stay here and then the kid's like great then let's go on an adventure together and then they go on an adventure together and like that's the last you kind of hear about the president I, I was told I knew, I only knew about the president thing and I was told by a friend who's played it that at one point he says, well, I am the president. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a moment where, where the kid is like, I'm going to be king of the world. And, and uh, the president is like, I'm kind of like a king, too. I was president. It's basically a king where I'm from. Yeah, I, I guess maybe clearly they're going after like leaders of nations and stuff, but. Yeah, that like sounds very how jarring. or why. Yeah, I'm not really <laughs> sure. Like, I, yeah, I, this is this is a game I feel a little bit like I'm going to need to really commit to if I really want to understand holistically what they're going for. And I, yeah. I don't know if I have that in me, but I am willing to give it some more time. Like, it's a game I do want to talk about a little bit more. That, that sounds like a January game to me. Where it's like, <laughs> once, once we're done with Goaty Prep, I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll bite. What's the president up to today? Yeah, maybe maybe that's the move. Maybe, maybe I'll hold it until then. But uh, I just I just needed to share that opening because like, I literally couldn't believe what was happening it, in that the was, same way as the first game like the first game opens in such a dark way i couldn't believe that they did the exact same thing with this game they've definitely taken a lot of the notes i think that a lot of people had about the first game and this is definitely a thing that you and i talked about on that episode with the first game as well Is like it takes a full hour and a half for you to get to the fantasy world and to start even playing for real yeah this game like nuke president here's this kid pulls out a gun now you're playing the video game you know it's like <laughs> it's like maybe 10 minutes max um, which is definitely a better start than the last one. Yeah, I, I think what they're going for in the first one is kind of like almost not quite to the same degree of darkness, but like a Pan's Labyrinth where yeah. it's clear that like you get a sense of this kid's day to day life. And it's sort of in like a it always struck me as like a 50s America. It almost feels kind of like earthbound in that way. And then, you know, this tragedy happens. And then, of course, the, he, he goes to the fantasy world, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a mirror of his world, which is cool. I think that works, but it does take a while to get there. Yeah, for sure. That's Nino Kuni to Revenant Kingdom. <laughs> a big mystery. Maybe we'll find out more about that game one day soon. Maybe. One Why don't day. we take a break and maybe take a quick jog and then uh, <laughs> come back? Just refresh ourselves with the outside air. Yeah. After after President Lore. <laughs> I'll see you soon. Bye bye. Steven, I have another game that I checked out this week. Uh, I can't. I can't wait for this one. This was a, <laughs> this, a positive jump scare on Twitch. Yeah. And I'm glad you are also bringing it to the show. I've just I just have had um, a, a, some moments recently where 
I feel like because of the, we were actually talking about this before we started recording this episode, but because of the nature of 2023, it feels like for every week of the year, there's been at least two or three huge heavy hitter releases. So a lot of this year for this podcast, which we always say, and I have already said on this episode is one where we're not always like beholden to new game releases. We're only like bringing things to the show when we're interested in them or care about them or whatever. It feels like there have been so many new releases that this has kind of become a new release show at times. So I've had, I've had a couple of moments over the past couple of weeks, especially in prepping for Goaty, where I was like, I really want to check something out that's old that I haven't played before. I just, I just like want to have a new, a new experience based in the past. So I went on Twitch the other morning uh, before before my workday and I streamed a bunch of Donkey Kong Country for the Super Nintendo which um, is available on the Nintendo Switch Super Nintendo online thing uh, so you can go check that out I wonder I always call it the like I, I feel like I can never figure out the actual name for that collection what does Nintendo call it have they figured it out I think it's just Nintendo online and then it says the system name oh. I think but like it, there should be like virtual console or something for it yeah I went yeah I wish there was a, a more holistic way of talking about it. anyway uh donkey Kong country is a game that i weirdly haven't played the only one that i've really like dipped into is uh tropical freeze a bit that was on the wii right yes yeah, the, the wii, wii that was the wii u yeah that was a wii u one uh and it's also available on the switch um and if you haven't played it would recommend I, I never finished it but um i've never gone back and played the originals and i know you you have and you like them a lot um and oh, i was yeah. like this would be a fun one to just kind of jump into and see what it's like especially considering steven has played a bunch of them so uh if you haven't checked out that video that's uh, that's on our youtube it's in the um the stream archives that we have on there uh in that playlist but donkey Kong country is a fascinating thing so it's made by rare it's probably worth chatting that out at the top it's technically like not fully nintendo rare made it but it is a side-scrolling platformer game I was interested in checking it out specifically from the perspective of like, why would Nintendo make another side-scrolling platformer game as like, you know, one of their big first-party intellectual property plays when they already have Mario in an era where everyone else is trying to be Mario and failing? Like, why would you take that risk? That's That was kind of the, the question that was burning in the front of my mind when I booted this game up. I, I just was so curious about it because if they succeeded, it's a huge fucking flex is the thing for me, right? Like it, the chances of failure are off the charts, but if they were able to pull it off <laughs> and have another dominant side-scrolling platformer game for the Super Nintendo, that just proves that Nintendo is like unbeatable at this and all of these other games that are trying their best, you know, like Pac-Man World or whatever, uh, just going to fall flat on their... Actually, I think Pac-Man World was a, was a, a point-and-click adventure game. That, that was Pac-Man 2. But I know what you mean any yes. competitor, choose a mascot, and there's probably one for them. There's probably yeah. a weird, yeah, there's probably a weird platforming game uh, where you play as them. So Donkey Kong Country, first of all, just visually amazing, I think, compared to a lot of the stuff happening on the Super Nintendo, because what it, what it looks to me like is that Rare uh, generated a bunch of 3D assets and then just kind of like turned them into pixel art and put them in the game, which I think is like just makes for a really interesting visual style. It's actually not too dissimilar from the original Super Mario RPG on the Super Nintendo. Yeah, I thought, that, I thought that's why you played it, because the, they both have that like almost claymation look to them. Yes. Uh, but like, yeah, there is like the attempts at 3D on Super Nintendo are very interesting. I think the other big one is Star Fox, which like didn't quite nail it in my opinion. I think you you actually need full 3D for that series to really come to life. Yeah, which it did on 64. Yeah, but. that is what that is one of the games that actually is like generating 3D assets on the on the Super Nintendo, yeah. which is pretty wild. But because of the power of that system, it's so limited that you can kind of not even tell what's going on. Whereas I th I think what Super Mario RPG and what Donkey Kong Country both went after, which is like generating 3D assets 
assets and then just converting them into pixel art sprites is like probably the way to go. So it has a really, really, really interesting look. Like it totally stands out from everything else that you played on the Super Nintendo. I think it's aged very well too. I think it looks like very distinct. And it and does. Like, it, lo- it looks yeah. really good. Yeah, it's it's really readable, which is always my concern with that stuff. And especially if you've ever seen those like uh, you know viral accounts on on TikTok or you know pick your platform of choice where people will show what pixel art looks like emulated and what it looks like on a CRT television. I think that that discrepancy between those two is still pretty strong, but I think the stuff is still pretty readable. Like there are there are moments like there's there's one uh, overworld map where you kind of zoom out and you can see that the entire island that you're on is shaped like Donkey Kong's head that like looks a little bit muddy and probably looked amazing on a CRT, but it still works. Like I still think it looks really good. But the the real highlight for me is the soundtrack by Grant Kirkhope. Oh, I mean, God, it's yeah. like some of the most legendary music ever like songs that i have heard a billion times before and didn't even realize were from this game you know that are just like put in those youtube mixes of like 10 hours of soothing nintendo music it's like half of that stuff is from Donkey Kong country i also think i i weirdly always judge a platformer soundtrack by the first level song i think Mm. like more so than other genres there's a lot of pressure on what stage one's theme is yeah so of course we have mario brothers setting the standard but i think like a game like celeste first steps incredible yeah opening song that kind of communicates the whole vibe of the game um donkey Kong country as well i mean iconic like this song especially when it came to smash brothers on 64 i got chills hearing it and like fighting uh in that stage yeah so good and so iconic amazing So jumping into this game, I immediately was struck by like, I don't know what I'm doing. I find the controls <laughs> to be difficult. Uh, you know, I think it's one of the downsides of the the Switch Online stuff is a lot of these older games are games where the expectation was at the time in the 90s when you purchased a video game, you also got a manual with it. And anyone who is like our age or older is probably nodding their head in agreement right now. But like you would go to a store, you would buy a game and you would read the manual on the way home. And then you would like know what you were doing a little bit before you started the game up. That that was like a universal experience with video games at the time. You would learn Jin Kazama's blood type on your way home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's AB, but he also has the devil gene in him somewhere. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. A- yeah. ABD. A- uh, Jin Kazuya. I think I might've got his name. There, there's two families in Tekken. I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> No, Kazuya is his dad. It is Jin Kazama. I'm glad we got that. Continue. Yes. Um, you, you can you can put your emails away, folks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I even talking about? Oh yeah. So jump, jumping into this game without the manual, I was like trying to press all the buttons, trying to figure it all out. I'm like, oh my god, do I really? I I can only go left and right and roll. Why am I picking up Diddy Kong? Is that helpful for me? I don't really know. So a little bit of the beginning of the game was me just like literally learning what was possible and what the different buttons did because a lot of buttons seemed to do nothing, um, which was confusing to me. But over the course of, I don't know, the first like 30 minutes or so making my way through the first levels, my headspace went from I'm learning what's possible to, oh my God, this is so excruciatingly difficult. Like I could, I couldn't believe how quickly I went from like, I'm learning to jump. I'm learning to roll. Can I jump on this enemy? Can I roll into this enemy? This is all very nice to like, I've died. I've died. I've died. I've died. I've died. I'm using save states. I'm loading over and over again. I, I just think it's amazing 
that the answer to my hypothetical top level question of like, why would you make another side scrolling platformer game with a first party Nintendo character, especially one like Donkey Kong, who like is for all intents and purposes at the time that this game comes out, almost as famous as Mario, like the idea of the original Mario Brothers game or the original Donkey Kong game, like the introduction of Mario is like the the guy, you know, jumping over barrels, and jumping stuff. over barrels yeah. and stuff like all of that stuff. You have almost this like two tiered ascension of Mario and Donkey Kong into the public zeitgeist. Mario obviously like runs away with it, but Nintendo being like, we want Donkey Kong to also have a thing, but to turn that into the same thing that Mario has. But the answer being, we're just going to make it so fucking hard (laughs) is so funny to me. And almost just feels like not only the flex that I was kind of hoping Nintendo would have and rare in this case, but also is like such a like, little conniving grin move in a lot of ways like i i can't believe and, and you were in chat uh, mercifully helping me with some of this stuff uh, while while i was streaming it but you were just like yeah you can only save every like six levels and i was just like how did how did any kid beat this game did any kid beat this game no or or i just you played it forever until like mathematically you eventually like that uh, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah the the monkeys and the typewriters you you describing rare like having a conniving grin while like making it their mission statement to make donkey kong like the like impossible mario game what's worth noting is like this is the beginning of rare becoming like one of nintendo's like star teams yeah right like the n64 era is almost carried by rare you have banjo kazooie goldeneye perfect dark like the list goes on uh congress bedford day of course which feels <laughs> at the end of that relationship and literally is yeah um <laughs> but like i do think they they always kind of sought to do what nintendo like flagship nintendo is doing but like kind of put their own spin on it you can see the same thing with banjo kazooie and mario 64 mm-hmm. where like that's the same thing everyone is trying to make a 3d platformer after mario 64 and like the closest anyone else came was rare with banjo kazooie i think notably though banjo kazooie is much more about exploration and discovery and like secrets and less about like strictly the sort of parkour platforming which i think is like okay like know your strengths like what can you do uniquely from what mario is doing yeah right the donkey kong country games uh are are near and dear to my heart the super nintendo i was like a little too young for like a, a lot of the games that like chrono trigger for example i didn't play until college so like a lot of the super nintendo hits that i talk about with you are ones that i played later on in life as an adult and kind of like admire in retrospect but the games that my family and i were playing a lot when i was like four five and six were super mario world batman returns incredible like uh oh yeah beat him up yeah beat him up it was very much like a clone of streets of rage with batman mm-hmm. but like what's not to like and the donkey kong country games specifically two two was the one that my sister and i played all the time and i think like they're really hard but i do think once you kind of know how the general mechanics work the levels are good at communicating ideas and amping them up in a similar way to mario yeah they're just much more relentless and much crueler i I think i joked with you on the stream that like it feels like mario the lost levels became its own series yes and i don't know if that was the feeling at the time like i don't remember as a kid feeling like oh this is impossible i just sort of like accepted it at face value and was like, okay i'm just like never gonna get past world two but like i enjoyed revisiting the old levels and what was really fun about these games is that there was co-op so like in the second game where you're um diddy and dixie i believe mm-hmm. you each play as one of them and when one character dies the game like gives you a second to pass the controller 
And then presumably the other person gets to play as the other character, which is really fun for a game like this because there's always the like sheer arrogance of the sibling or friend being like, let me try, I'll get past. And then they just immediately get they hit by a beef. It, yeah. <laughs> um, but one thing about this game that I that I love is like it really does also feel like maximalist Mario, where like there's just so much to discover. There are like constantly secret paths full of bizarre bonus levels that you don't even it's like warioware but without knowing what to do they're just like <laughs> you're an ostrich and you have to like run around um and also just the animal companions and all the wild stuff that can happen i become a big fan of the frog yeah the frog is great i i really think you can see like when you were streaming i was like i see so much of this series in mario wonder you know i feel like yeah. mario wonder really sought to incorporate what was being done in, in the Donkey Kong Country games. And it's kind of been like, not forgotten, but I, I don't know if these games get the same reverence that I think they deserve. Yeah, from what I see, from what I see online, a lot of the discussion about the Donkey Kong franchise is just like, man, I wish more people played and talked about Tropical Freeze. Like, that's kind of it. Yeah. It's just like everyone just is kind of like looking at Tropical Freeze being like, I, w I wish there was more of that, which there have been rumors for years at this point that there's a new Donkey Kong side-scrolling platformer that's like imminent to come come out but you know with nintendo that that might mean that it will come out in five or six years or something i'm pretty sure retro took it over right once rare no longer is that true yeah so tropical phrase was also retro studios so i think i mean they're really good at picking up like they are the team nintendo's like we don't know what to do with this one you guys ready they're like yep we've got like a masterpiece planned for for metroid uh, and i think they did a great job with donkey kong as well with tropical freeze and with the 3ds one i would love to see them iterate on that because i think there's i think now we're at a point where it's like kirby has discovered its corner with forgotten land i feel like kirby feels very distinct from mario at this point yeah yoshi i think has found a corner of like being the the opposite like way more kid friendly way more relaxed kind of this is a great game for like a very young audience playing with their parents which is beautiful because i think mario is that too but mario also i think demands a little bit more there's a place for a game that's like this is for like someone's first video game you yeah know? right yeah because e even even in mario wonder for example like they have you know you could play as the yoshis or you could play as nabbit who can't take any damage but yeah i i think that also requires a little bit of like you're just going to completely turn your brain off and, and just kind of run around which is fine but i do think there's there's as you're saying a, a real gap in the market for something like what the yoshi franchise is going after right now which is like you can hand this to a kid and they can engage with the mechanics fully you know yeah Exactly. And I think there's a place for something like Donkey Kong that is like maybe for a more veteran audience, you know, people who have played platformers and really want that challenge and aren't necessarily waiting for the optional levels in a Mario. They just want that straight away. Right. I just think retro are great at like simultaneously having reverence for the series they take on and seeing what worked and then also putting their own spin on it. You know, I think the big thing with the 3DS one was playing with like perspective where you would go like back and forth in the plane and that that. I think to varying degrees worked. I think it was maybe a little bit hard to track sometimes, but just stuff like that. They're willing to take swings with older franchises that give them some life past just like, here's another one, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I'm glad you checked the series out. I would recommend the second one, especially, I think is where they really nail it. Like the first one's great, but I think the save system, wild decision to like... <laughs> Because basically how it works is like you're navigating this hub world and Candy Kong's like shack 
uh, is where you save, mm-hmm. but she only pops up like every so often. Uh, so right. like, and it's for a while early on, like there's a chance you may just have to start from the very beginning <laughs> if you don't get there in time. In Donkey Kong Country 2, you can find coins in a level and you can save any time if you have two coins, which is still a little tedious because you might have to go <laughs> so into funny. a level and get coins and then leave the level to save, but it's better. It's much better than just not getting to save for forever. But all that is, you know, taken care of with save states if you're playing on Switch. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a weird era of Nintendo just being so brutal with the ways in which you would save games. I remember even <laughs> even on the, as recently as the DS and I think on the Wii U with the Mario stuff, you would need to make it to a castle to be able to save. You'd need to make it to and defeat a castle to be able to save. Like you couldn't just save whenever you wanted after beating a level. You needed to beat like four or five levels. Like I remember New Super Mario Brothers on the DS. I think each each world had I want to say either six or eight levels in it. And the fourth one was always like a midpoint castle. And you could only save you hit that midpoint castle or beat the last castle, which meant that like if you made it through one three and it was really difficult and then you died on one four and you didn't get to save, you'd have to start the game from the top, um, which is relentless. I don't know. I don't know why they were so cruel about that stuff. I feel like, though, in this era, I was very, especially as a kid, I was very okay with just starting from the beginning. Oh, yeah. You know, I liked the idea. I mean, one, you're a kid and everything is new and exciting and you have time. But like, I liked kind of just re-entering that world and seeing how far I got. And I think there's also still some arcade logic with those games where it's like, let's just see how well you can do with what we give you. You know, how far did you get? I've never seen how it ends. You're trying to save Donkey Kong for the record. He's been kidnapped by pirates. Um, I'm actually, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at uh, a, a Wikipedia page uh, sorry, a fandom.com page ooh. Uh, ooh, about Sonic the Hedgehog. And I'm realizing now I've never made it past the third zone of the original Sonic the Hedgehog, despite that being like the only game I had for a pretty formative part of my youth. There was a weird comfort in that. I did the same thing again with Ocarina of Time. I've mentioned like I would get to the water temple and then just start the game over. Or uh, even with Final Fantasy VII, I would get to like around disc two and then put it away. And then when I would go back to it, I would just start from the beginning. Yeah. I, I do think games were kind of meant to be replayed in a way that not all of them are now, with a few exceptions. Like I think like yeah. you play a game like the Resident Evil 4 remake, and that is like tailor-made to be replayed over and over again. Right. Uh, even stuff like Elden Ring, which is huge, has variations on New Game Plus. Like they do exist, but I, I do think like I feel like it was kind of a given for a while and it's it's more case by case now overall. Yeah, I think you can really track the the player expectation of replayability. Like I feel like the idea of replayability comes up in a lot of reviews to this day because of this era. Like it's just a holdover from, you know, the the like arcade machine era of trying to eat your quarters essentially. And and the weird the weird era that followed of game makers and game designers needing to take that logic and try and apply it to home consoles before they were like, wait, if this is in your house, it can be a different thing. It doesn't need to just be the arcade, but at home. And I, and I, I think that created this expectation of replayability for a lot of people that we, we still hear about constantly. It's interesting too. I feel like ev- especially during the DS episode, every game review I've read that is prior to like 2014 complains about games being too short. Yeah. Like guaranteed. And it's like how far we've come. I feel like now when you say a game is like under 20 hours, everyone's like, ah, you know, I can actually see it through. I don't know. I don't, I think that's, I think that's like a you and me and the games press thing. Cause I like, that's true. Th- the amount of, I don't even want to call it conversation. I'll call it discourse. 
the amount of discourse I saw about is the Super Mario RPG remake worth $60 is like hair pullingly frustrating. You it's know? worth knowing I'm I'm notably less online than you are. So I think when I say when I make generalizations like this, I'm kind of in a cloud. I'm like in the frog pond where Mallow grew up. <laughs> and I'm like, it's it's great here. <laughs> the water's fine. The music's great. You're totally right. I, I think and that's I think like that connects to conversations about like game pricing. And, you know, I, I do think that there's like rising tension as games just sort of balloon and cost so like while it definitely goes to wild places like i do understand why those conversations are happening to a certain degree yeah uh but yeah it is it depresses me when people try to make an arithmetic where it's like i should get a uh, an hour for a dollar or something where yeah. it's like i don't know i i think you're right though it is definitely a game podcast thing to want short focused things but i i, I don't know I, I i would maybe push back a bit that like i do think there's maybe a general sense of fatigue in terms of games promising the world you know and being like the biggest and and grandest definitely thing yeah, ever. yeah th this is the thing you and i used to talk about all the time is like every time a new open world game got announced it was like this is the biggest world we've ever made in a video game and 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 you and i started to bristle at that statement over over the years and i think i'm, I'm gonna make a sweeping generalization here i think wow. it's i think it's an era specifically of a certain kind of game design pointing directly at like what ubisoft did with pretty much all of their franchises from assassin's creed to ghost recon to far cry to i, I don't know probably probably the upcoming avatar game where it's like the giant open world with billions of nodes on a map you know that's like okay the game is technically 150 hours that's because you're doing the same activity over and over and over again like i think that is so tired for a lot of people and there's still obviously there are obviously people who, who like that stuff you can still do that well i think ghost of tsushima is like the best version of yes. that style of game you yes know? absolutely yeah that that to me was a really eye-opening moment that was like there is still life in this i just think that a lot of the franchises that i associate with that kind of game have have lost their way in a way where it's like we're just trying to like do Assassin's Creed again, but in a different place, which is why I appreciated things like Origins and Odyssey and Valhalla, just kind of like trying to break the mold a little bit. But like Grand Theft Auto 6 is going to get announced in like a week or two or something like that. Yeah, and like when right. that when that happens, is that going to be another like, hey, we're back? Like, I think it's in Vice City, they said, like, we're going to be back in Vice City, but it's going to be like eight times as big as it used to be with a billion icons on a map. Like, I don't I don't know if that's the Grand Theft Auto six that i would want to play you know but also this is this is a post red dead redemption 2 rockstar that we're talking about so who knows what's up yeah i'm definitely curious at least i, I think to kind of connect it to donkey kong somehow i do <laughs> I've, been, I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of like anticipating our game of the year conversation when i look at 2023 and i see the games that are like huge hits not necessarily going by strict number of sales but like the games that I, I, at least in my perspective, I've seen conversations about, I've seen really resonate with people. I do wonder if like the ambition of games in the mainstream is changing, or at least the appetite for a certain style of ambition is changing based on which big games really landed and which big games were like sort of okay, well-received. Yeah. Like I think when when we talk about Donkey Kong Country, you and I, regardless of like the games we played growing up, the era of games that were coming out when we were kids were almost all side-scrolling platformers. Um, and I think because of that, a lot of, the, and this is again, very broadly speaking, but I think when that's your foundation, when that's what like the style of game you're being shown when you're a kid, 
the next step is 3D. You know, I, I distinctly remember playing Mario 64 and being like, I, I can go in any direction. That is wild. Mm-hmm. And then that quickly becomes, see that mountain in the distance? You can climb that mountain. We get something like Skyrim. Right. And I think that's really cool and really exciting. And there's still value in that. But I think at this point, there is maybe a greater expectation for interaction in meaning than simply scale. Because I'm thinking Absolutely. about like yeah. the generation younger than us, when your formative experience is not side-scrolling platformers, but it's something like Minecraft, there's an expectation that that mountain in the distance that you can climb can also be blown up and built into a log cabin. You know, and I think you can see, the, I think the success of Tears of the Kingdom very wisely is incorporating mechanics found in stuff like Fortnite and Minecraft. And not not that you necessarily have to fold to those demands, but I think that level of interaction in a game that is trying to be the biggest and greatest thing is is sort of an expectation now in a way that maybe it wasn't in 2011 with something like Skyrim, where like there was less of a need for everything to have that level of meaning. I'm thinking back to games like Elden Ring, for example, or even going back further, games like Dark Souls, right? Like Dark Souls, I think one of the reasons that a lot of people really love that game is because it's not only a see that mountain you can get there, but it's told in a way where there's there's a reason to be there. And when you're standing in one place and you can see something in the distance, you're like, that place looks fucked up and you end up there. It's as fucked up as you thought it was. Yeah, that place with the red sky sucks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And... I I think you're right to bring up games like Tears of the Kingdom. I think Elden Ring, as I brought up, is like a great example of this. Totally. Like you can have scale and have that scale mean something, right? I I think looking at Breath of the Wild, not to jump all over the place, but Breath of the Wild we've talked about in the past. There are rumors. I don't know if they're like totally founded or confirmed, but there are rumors that the, the team that worked on Breath of the Wild and the world design of Breath of the Wild went to Disneyland specifically to have these have a greater understanding of the way the Imagineers built Disneyland, where you could stand in one place and see something else in the distance. And and they were really smart about like painting the back of one ride to fit the theme of the area you were in right now. So it all felt holistic. So if you were in Adventureland, it all looked like Adventureland, even if you were looking at the back of Tomorrowland, things like that. And and the Breath of the Wild team went there to kind of like just like ingest all of that idea and, and look at the castle and say like, wow, the castle is actually small, but it looks really tall because of the way you know it tapers up you know in 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 scope when you when you get towards the top of the castle like the 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 turret at the top is actually smaller than you think it is um because when you're standing at the bottom it looks gigantic and incorporating that into their world things like that to create not only the biggest space they could imagine but make it so no matter where you are in that space there's something interesting to look at that will pique your curiosity and you'll be rewarded for that curiosity versus just something like if you go to this place, you can do a mini game uh, and you will get, I don't know, uh, a way to upgrade your pouch to hold more rabbit skin, you know? Yeah. Or you do your crit does a little bit more. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. I, I feel like I feel like you're you're totally right that like if, if you have the, these era, these distinct eras of like 2D, then 3D, then giant 3D. The next phase of this needs to be interactivity. I honestly think that's one of the reasons why cyberpunk captured so many people's imaginations before it even came out was because here's CD project red saying we're making night city. It's going to be fucking huge, but you're going to be able to go into all of these stores. It's like kind of the dream of what we've always thought when playing things like grand theft auto on the PS2 or whatever, this dream of like, what if I could go into any of these places? Like what, what if these weren't just like walled off blocks that looked like skyscrapers, but were in fact actual businesses that I could go in and like frequent and become a regular at, like yeah that's the level of interaction i think that we're kind of headed towards and i think that's why as as 
consoles get more powerful and as the technology starts to meet our expectations, we're starting to see these games like Cyberpunk, you know, however you feel about it. I think it's kind of a, a, an amazing thing that they were able to pull off with that game and Tears of the Kingdom and Breath of the Wild and and Elden Ring that are like really paving the foundation for what the expectations can be going forward. And Baldur's Gate 3, I think, is another great example of that. The flip side of this, of course, that you I would be remiss if I didn't bring up is just like the cost involvement of stuff like that, like the amount of money and resources and time it makes to do that. And the fact that that might not pay off is such a huge gamble for any of these companies to make. It's why I'm so interested in Grand Theft Auto 6 being announced in general is because like the last time we had a Grand Theft Auto game, a mainline numbered Grand Theft Auto game was on the PS3 is when that thing launched. We've skipped an entire generation and we're halfway through the next one before Rockstar is like ready to show us the next Grand Theft Auto, which to me indicates like they really wanted to take the time and effort and put the resources into it to probably make sure it's going to be a sure thing. And I'm just really curious to see what that looks like, especially if it matches the expectation that we have as like a society of people who play video games now, you know? Yeah. And, and to be clear, like when I, when I talk about expectation and demand, I'm, it's so funny that? that this is the Donkey Kong country segment. <laughs> hey man, that's why I like bringing this stuff up. You don't know where it's going to lead. Um, <laughs> it's so funny. Ow! <laughs> I like the way Diddy Kong goes Ow! when he gets hit. I think when I when I talk about like demand and expectation, I'm I'm specifically thinking about like this sort of blockbuster AAA game and the people that buy a couple games a year, right? And like what they kind of want to get out of like okay, not to you know go into that conversation, but okay, what's the seven dollar game I'm gonna get? Yeah, you know what's here and and what do I want out of it? I think that is changing. I think that is changing to incorporate elements that were maybe previously more niche because like it's wild that that game that games like Elden Ring and Baldur's Gate 3 are mainstream successes yeah because these are games that represent like a corner of a niche within a niche you know <laughs> um and but yet spoke to people on like a, on a on a very wide level and I think in the case of Baldur's Gate 3 especially like I feel like a lot of people are loving that game that maybe have no experience with D&D or like maybe didn't even know that they enjoyed role playing games. But just the prospect of like, I can I can like say all these wild things or I can like talk to a bear, you know, all that stuff, right. I think, really excited people in a way that maybe just saying this game is huge just doesn't anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I think the the fact that we had that one year. God, was that last year? No, it was two years ago, right? Where, where Elden Ring came out? Was that last year? That was last year. That's so fucked up. It was February <gasps> of last year. Oh my God. Yeah. Anyway, the fact that we had a, a 2022 where Elden Ring comes out and is so obviously the game of the year for like almost every publication to the point where when you and I went into Goatee season, we were like, I'm really just interested in what everybody's number two is. Yeah, exactly. What a wild world we live in where that was the possibility. And I feel like we're careening towards the same thing with Baldur's Gate 3 for a lot of people. We're like, Baldur's Gate 3 is going to win a lot of Game of the Year awards. It's nominated for literally the Game Awards Game of the Year. It feels unheard of to have a game that is like kind of that niche blow up and be so gigantic. I, I just I just think it's really fascinating to look at the threads between what have become all of the game of the year games over the past couple of years, like the, the, the runaway hits and see what they all have in common. Even going back to a game like Hades, like that's that's the same thing that made Hades work for everybody, you know, or even Animal Crossing. Right. Yeah. There's that level of interaction and depth and not width. Exactly. Yes. And I just wonder if that's like I hope, honestly, I hope that's the new direction. And of course, like you said, 
it's not fair to expect every game to hit this nor should you yeah, like i think totally you should always judge we say it every every day it feels like <laughs> judge a game by its intentions i'm not expecting like you know a game with the smaller team to have the level of interaction that Baldur's gate 3 does right, but right every now and then i think it's great when you when you see games that come from those smaller teams without that pressure it's those people that think of the next thing that becomes like the secret ingredient for the next wave of mainstream success. Totally. You know? Yeah. So I think the TNT barrels are a useful item if you're in a level full of bees. Yeah. You can hold down the button to carry the barrels around, which I didn't even realize. I thought you just had to pick them up and throw them, but you don't have to. You can you can carry a TNT barrel all the way to the end of the level. Is two also on the Switch Online or is it just It the is, first yeah. One? Oh, hell yeah. I've also never... I've only... I almost said rarely. Wow. Uh, I've, I've only played a little bit of three. I like know almost nothing about Donkey Kong Country 3. Was that also on the Super Nintendo? It was. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's on there. That's with Dixie and like her weird cousin who's in like a onesie pajama suit. <laughs> but yeah. Um, Double trouble. The second one is on like a pirate ship. Very nautical. It's probably why I like it. Mm, yeah. It's definitely why you like it. It's the only reason. that's the only reason let's take a break i feel like that was a very uh that was a very full discussion thank you rare and donkey kong for leading the way thank you donkey kong Uh, thanks donkey kong see you in the second one i'll save you eventually bye-bye bye-bye brendan hey i also have an update on a game that i brought to the show a long time ago start of the year uh but it's remained close to my heart ever since i've been playing octopath traveler 2 again this is one of the games that I'm always surprised counts for Goaty because I feel like it came out last year. <laughs> I mean, it was really early. This was like yeah. February of this year, yeah. maybe March. It was February. And it's interesting because like I mentioned earlier this episode, which was also somehow in the same day as today, time is stretching. <laughs> but uh, this year has been big for a lot of like the retro RPG you know, revival games. Like we have Chained Echoes, which technically came out the very end of last year, but sort of quietly counting. Sea of Stars, of course, and Octopath Traveler 2. And honestly, like my expectations for Octopath Traveler 2 were pretty low. The first game was one of our first games talked about. It was our first like official... Technically our first episode of the show, yeah. And that was the game that like you and I... I mean, I think the consensus of that game is pretty fairly universal. We're like... I think it really nailed certain things, but it fell short of its own promise. And I think a lot of people kind of felt burned by it. And then the follow-ups from, I don't know if it's the same team, but like the similar games coming from Square, like Triangle Strategy, which was very much like going after a Final Fantasy Tactics, uh, Tactics Ogre style game. Similar deal with that one, where I feel like they so thoroughly nailed the tactics and the combat but it just felt lopsided with like how much story there was and the quality of that story yeah. and the obsession of salt and it just i i enjoyed my time with it and like every map was like a thrill but i just found it to be a little bit tedious to get through at a certain point yeah same so i just i kind of feel like not not that i was like okay third strike you're out but i was just sort of like based on prior games i wasn't sure or i wasn't confident that Octopath 2 would learn the right lessons yeah. from the previous games. It was possible that it was going to go the same direction as Tokyo RPG Factory, another another smaller team within Square Enix that was trying to make kind of throwback RPGs, which launched with I Am Setsuna, which is like 
really a beautiful game a whole lot going for it like great combat yeah. great story great soundtrack yeah just like really unique look really unique world like a lot going on and then each subsequent game just sold less and was received more poorly than the last which is definitely a bummer and i think they're gone i think tokyo rpg factory is just gone at this point and it octopath traveler is kind of an interesting case where i think that actually came out around the same time as i am setsuna also a year later it was uh 2018 I, i'm pretty sure i'm setsuna was 2016 or 2017 but yeah same yeah I, I just remember i remember reading a lot of reviews of i am setsuna and people saying don't get this just wait for octopath traveler because everyone was so sure wow. that was going to be the one yeah there was a lot of hype that was the other thing too with octopath yeah. traveler one was like it came out at a time where there there wasn't the same plethora of games like it that there is now yeah you know which is kind of interesting we've been doing the show long enough that we can like distinctly see those different eras yeah and it's, it's I just think it's been interesting to see that game come out. Our our reception to it being like pretty positive. But, you know, we obviously had some gripes and some grievances, which a lot of people had. Uh, and then Triangle Strategy being so excited for it. I remember I was I was doing another show on YouTube at the time. And um, I did I did an episode where the idea for the episode was I was going to talk about video game news while playing the demo for Triangle Strategy. And I just like shut the fuck up and didn't talk about the news at all because I was so engrossed in the Triangle Strategy demo and then getting the full game and being like, this is not working for me on the level that I want it to and on the level that I was hoping for after something like Octopath Traveler. And I personally saw Octopath Traveler's two's announcement as a little bit of like a mea culpa like it felt a little bit like them being like okay let's go back to what works people like octopath traveler let's do that again instead of continuing down this trend or then this trend line of like trying to revive old forgotten styles of game from square they were like let's just go back and try octopath traveler again so i, I was a little bit mixed on even the idea of it existing in the first place if i'm being totally honest yeah i, I was i was i was guarded my heart was guarded and i've already brought to the show so you know that both of us love this game yeah it's great but like the more i play of it this is like one of the biggest glow ups a sequel <laughs> has ever been like it's it's like uncharted one to uncharted two yeah assassin's creed one to assassin's creed two and octopath like not only does it fix like every issue i had with the first game it adds other elements that like completely elevate it to something that wasn't even promised by the first game. Right. You know, I think the first game was very much pitching like, didn't you used to love Final Fantasy V? That's it. You know, like, <laughs> and I think it fell short on that. Cause I think one of the things the game was like centered around was this idea of these eight characters. You choose who like the main character is essentially, and you go around, recruit everyone. And the weirdest thing about that game was how like separate all the stories felt. Right. They, from what I know, like the end game, they, they eventually kind of unify, but like too little too late for a lot of people, yes. unless you're like really loving the combat, which to be to be fair, it's incredible. Even in the first game, they, they really nailed the combat. Yeah, like, it was amazing. It was easily, uh, far and away the best part of that game for me. Yeah. And the music's incredible. The the look of it. But Octopath 2, I think, just elevates all of that. Like it looks better. The soundtrack's better. Like the gameplay is better. I, I would argue the characters are better also this time around. I'm, I'm significantly more interested in like seeing through the stories of these people. And to, to be clear, like I think the narrative of the, of, of Octopath Traveler two is like purposely simple. I don't think it's trying to be anything past familiar. The sense of character is strong with all the leads. Yeah. And I think you're, you're at least invested in the variety of the stories, or at least I am, I should say, like, I, I like the fact that I can jump from throne is like, 
almost off-puttingly dark revenge story to like Agnia, like, you know, Footloose story <laughs> with a with a musical happening. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, I think, you know, they, they do things like in battle, the characters will like kind of comment on each other's role, sort of like Persona, which is a nice touch. There's way more travel banter, which weirdly in the first game didn't unlock until like hour 20. And then you got these like, spotlight scenes of two characters talking and it was just so bizarre it was so stilted and weird and like did it didn't feel like interaction it, it felt it, yeah it almost felt like an apology from the developers yeah like, realizing that they should have put this in earlier there's still like they still deliver the travel banter in that way but it's way more common and there's actually a thrill on like what scenes you're getting because like as you're doing a story mission they will like throw those scenes in between like beats of the mission and like, there's a lot of, there's so much to unlock. It's sort of like little vignettes of Fire Emblem supports. And some of them are like genuinely very funny. They all at least give you a side of the character that you're not getting in their main quest. Mm-hmm. Like my lead is Oswald, who is like if Jean Valjean never learned mercy and is like his two, like you have to actually have to play his first two chapters right after each other because he's in like a high security prison yeah the whole chapter time. one is a prison break it's <laughs> unbelievable it does i will say though not starting with oswald it was really interesting making it to his story because when you're when you're in the prison i felt like i was trapped in prison <laughs> like i felt i felt like the game was punishing me for not picking oswald first and like getting that story <laughs> out of the way being like you, you are stuck here baby and not only do you need to break out of this prison but when you're done you're still stuck here baby <laughs> yeah he, and it's i've learned recently a friend of the show chase host of video game potum is they also recently brought this game up on their show he showed me a screenshot of just finding like when you find oswald if you don't start as him he's just face down in the snow yes like right outside his town <laughs> and it's like what's the deal with this guy yeah because everyone else is like hey you, you want to join forces and i think what makes this all feel way more connected is like there are a lot of mechanics that apply to the npcs of the world like they're characters that can like buy or steal or ask for items from every NPC in the game. Uh, you can like challenge them to a duel and learn moves from them. Uh, and you can also like gain information from them. And every character has like a little paragraph backstory, some of which are like totally wild. Like I was walking around the world map and there was a woman staring at a waterfall and she was like, you know, when is he going to be here? And I and I scrutinized her as Oswald, which gives you like a backstory on them. It said it casually said her age was 124 (laughs) and that she's been waiting here like for years for this person to show up. Oh, my God. And that's just like a little detail that I could find optionally if I wanted to. Um, And on her, she was holding a trident. And then in a treasure chest nearby was a called a matching trident. Mm. So the implication is like these are like two like mer people, I guess waiting for each other wow um and the game is full of stuff like that where it not only rewards exploration and curiosity in the way that we were just talking about with like Elden ring and Baldur's gate 3 but it also paints this picture that like every character in this world has their own story going on and could theoretically and sometimes literally join the team and like be as part of it as any of the eight leads are and that to me is like I think what they were going for in the first game and what they nail in the second mm. one. Um, and it's just like, I mean, the combats, I, I I think this is maybe alongside persona five, the best turn-based combat like ever truly like not even hyperbolic. I just, I think they really nailed it. There is so much variety. Like, I think just the, 
it has a similar kind of system where you're manipulating turn order and exploiting enemy weakness to like kind of get the edge in combat which gives like an element of control and ownership that's usually not in turn-based combat which makes it just feel more exciting and more active but on top of that every character has their core class and their core talents and like uh, what they call latent ability which is sort of like their big limit break and then you eventually get the option to multi-class so like that's where i think the game really gets its hooks in me where like i'm constantly experimenting with like what class should i make this character what abilities can i learn while they're this class but then switch into another one because the way it works is like they're always their core class they always have access to those skills but when you choose a subclass they also get access to that class's skills and as they unlock more abilities you unlock the passive skills which can be equipped no matter what subclass you have so to kind of explain that more simply if i have agnia the dancer subclass as a thief if i unlock passive skills for thief i can equip those even if i change her subclass to something else and that's where i think the possibilities are just truly endless you know like there's a there's an ability you get from hunter it's a passive ability called salt the wound that gives you a percentage chance to just get another turn if you break the enemy's guard. And like, there's a character named Throne, who's the thief, whose latent ability is getting to go again. So there are moments in the game, the way I have her class, <laughs> she just sometimes gets to go like four times in a row. That rocks. And it's truly busted. And I think like, this game is having fun with just like, they're going to throw wild shit at you. So just make your party as broken as possible. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's concerned with it's concerned with balance in in the way that like it wants to make every character viable and make the game fun no matter who you're playing as but i think it's comfortable with the fact that like some moves are just gonna like make this game wildly in your favor and that's okay that's the way you want to play it i just think it's like the more i play octopath 2 the the more i just see it as like a landmark rpg not even just like oh i was really rooting for this series and i'm glad they got it right i just think like on its own merits it's like amongst the best I just think it's like a miraculous game that I I think should get more attention. I still think it's not like for everyone in a way that like I could recommend Persona 5 and you may just become a fan of the genre. I think you specifically have to like this style of gameplay where it is like focused on combat and focused on grinding to be clear. But I think because that focus on grinding and leveling up is paired with experimentation and exploration, it makes a game that feels like the dream of Final Fantasy V fully realized. Yeah. So I think it's great. I was going to say gr grinding is so frequently pointed at as kind of like a bad word. And I, I have found, at least over the past couple of years of playing a lot of the RPGs that we've uh, jumped into for the show, that grinding is only bad when the combat is not standing up to your expectation of fun, really, right? And and there are some, there are some games, I think like Dragon Quest V is a great example where like, you need to be doing a lot of grinding in that game to be able to match some of the bosses that you're going to be fighting. But the combat is fun enough and is like nuanced enough and is interesting enough that I don't mind setting aside an entire play session to just level up a little bit, you know? Yeah. And I think Octopath 2, as you mentioned, not only has the chops in terms of the way its combat is designed to like just be exhilarating always. Like there, there is never a moment when you get to use all your boost points in one turn with one character that isn't like, I'm going to fuck you up. You, you know, you just like, yeah. it really has the, like, I'm going to jump out of my seat because it's so exciting to press that button four yes. times moment. But on top of that, 
you're also rewarded via all of the latent exploration and all the other stuff that you can do alongside all of that stuff. So moments in Octopath 2 where I'm like, I'm going to set aside the PlayStation to grind also end up rewarding me with like new weapons I can equip, new uh, new armor, at the very least, like a bunch of currency that I can go into a town and spend, meeting new characters, finding new side stories and side quests that I didn't realize were out there, things like that. Like, I, I just think this game kind of covers all of its bases and, and makes good on the promise of the first one. And I think, as you said, almost exceeds it in a lot of ways, where like Octopath Traveler 1 really was just pitched as Final Fantasy V again with this amazing art style. And what we found over the course of playing it was... Although the combat is like hitting this really high bar, this like at the time new 2D, 3D art style was like firing on all cylinders and was just like so stunning. Those two things alone weren't enough to propel players all the way through, because I I think, unfortunately, a lot of the character work, as you said, is so backloaded, like it doesn't even show up until later in the game. And even when it does, it's not really it doesn't feel rewarding. It doesn't really feel like it's expanding upon these people who I like. I like the characters in the first game, but like, yeah, there, there's some standouts, but yeah. yes, but that's the thing. There are some standouts and there are some that feel like homework. And unfortunately you have to do all of it. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Um, yeah. We should have gotten a Tressa and Primrose game. Really? Yeah. No, at, like for real. Yeah. That's like, honestly, that duality between those two characters is the thing that was propelling me the most through that game. But at a certain point I started to realize like, I'm, I just feel like, I'm grinding in the bad way and not grinding in the good way. Whereas Octopath Traveler 2 is not only making good on all of those things that the first game had promised, but is like charting new territory. And is, as, yeah. as you said, like put planting a flag in the ground and being like, this is what Octopath is. This isn't what the history of the fran- or of the genre was, but this is what Octopath is in that genre. And I think that's really exciting. And I think yeah. after kind of fumbling a little bit with triangle strategy and even coming into this game being like, it almost feels a little bit like the safe move to go and do Octopath 2 again. They really just took every right note, fixed every single negative point of that game and kept all the stuff that was good. Like it is like the dream sequel in that way. I think the big thing with the first one was like it was structured like a circle. Like you, you and yes. in some ways cleverly, because like no matter who you started with, if you like walked in the next direction, you the next person you got kind of balanced out your party. Yeah. But then it, it is really sort of smart. like it was like a spiral where it was just like, go to the next chapter that you probably don't care about. Yeah. You know, two of the eight are like, okay, stories. So good luck. Um, with this game though, it's all over the place. The UI is really helpful. Where like, they'll tell you like this area is high level. This area is low level. I streamed this game the other day. I'll probably stream it again. It's a really fun game to stream because like I was, okay, I have these two character stories that I want to do, but I also just found this random ass cave and was warned about a monster inside and I want to check that out. Yeah. Right. You know, and like everyone in chat was like, let's go to the cave. And like the fact that you have that agency of like exploring and, and again, leading by your own curiosity rather than obligation, it completely changes the game. Yeah. And I also know for a fact, like there's so much, like I'm, I have 50 hours of the game to be clear. And I think I'm probably halfway through. And the, usually that would make me feel exhausted, but I'm like, this isn't a game I even really want to be. I just love being here. Mm. You know, I love like the incremental improvements and the experimentation. And like, I'm sure I'll see it through eventually, but like it really kind of blossoms the more you play it. Where like one, I'm enjoying seeing more of everyone's story, but you also unlock duo chapters where they'll pair the wildest combinations of characters together and you'll get a story beat with just those two and those feel like true kind of fire emblem supports Mm. where like 
I just had one with Casty, the apothecary, and Ochette, the hunter. And they like that's fine. I got a sense of their because yeah, yeah, it's like this person is like led by her obligation to like tend to the wounded, and this person is always hungry. And like that's <laughs> enough of like an opening to a scene that I'm already in. Whoever decided to pair Oswald with Particio the Merchant deserves a gold medal. Oh my god. Like that was like, what a great <laughs> idea. Yes. Yeah. The whole scene is like, howdy, Oswald. I want to go buy a telescope. And he goes, Why look at the stars when Harvey is in my mind? You know, like this <laughs> obsessed with revenge on this guy named Harvey. That stuff. And I I I from what I've been told, that just keeps coming. So like, you know, it is I, I think what they were probably going for with the first game was like ramping up to them coming together yeah. whereas this game's giving you enough of those connections that when i'm sure it all actually comes together it feels like you earned that yes yeah 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 it, it, it's instilling in you the emotional stakes to make the ending resonate i think instead of just hoping that you liked each of the individual characters enough over the course of playing through the first game that by the time they all come together at the end the game is just kind of like it has like a wish and a dream that you're going to feel something about it, you know? Totally. Um, I I just want to say, like, I know a lot of people who felt similarly about the first game. If you felt that way about Octopath 1, but you enjoyed any piece of it and, like, have been hesitant to try the sequel, like, please give it a shot. I think it's, like, I think it's going to blow you away if you liked elements of the first game. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to hold your feet to the fire on this, but I am curious, like, where does this... Not, not that we have to create a whole power ranking, but like, where does this rank for you in terms of this style of RPG? Like, do you, is it like alongside the greats at this point for you? Like, is this, ga- is this game to you what Dragon Quest Eleven is to me, for example? It's hard to answer because I think it's, the thing I like about it is that it's, it feels fresh to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like the expectation of experience from a Dragon Quest or a Persona. And now I, I think for me, I'm just seeing, like you said before, like Octopath being like, this is what this series does. As an overall game, I I would definitely like. It's it's hard to say. I would say I, I don't need you to be like this is my number three game in the no genre. no no. But I think it's at least on par with like you know I don't I don't know if it's like the religious experience of like those RPGs like Chrono Trigger FF Seven that like are part of my soul. But I think it's definitely at least mechanically on par, if not better, than a lot of the greats. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So I would say it's definitely like in the upper pantheon for sure. Yeah. And I think like I've I've talked to people about how like and not to pit them against each other, but I do think it's genuinely interesting to see even just looking at Sea of Stars, Shane Echoes, and Octopath Two. It seems like one of those three games really connected to people, and that's really cool because right. they're all going after something different. They all on paper have the same mission, but to me, I think they all feel fundamentally different. And I think which one works best for you is almost like a personality test for what you value in an RPG, mm. which is weird. Because if you just showed me the three games, I would have guessed Sea of Stars in the question. Like, yeah, that just seemed like on paper the more Steven game. But something about Octopath 2 just like really connected with me in a way that the other two kind of didn't. Like, I like both those other games, but I just did, I haven't felt the same drive to see more of it unlike this one. And I think maybe it's because other than the presentation, it doesn't feel retro in design. It feels like a step forward. Mm. which I think is like the magic trick of the game. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's an interesting way of putting it. Cause I, I feel like for me, one of the more interesting things over the course of the year, especially given how like hard in the paint I was going for chained echoes uh, towards the end of last year, where we decided it was going to count for this year's goatee and not last year's. I have found over the course of the year, my like the the scales tipping in the favor of Octopath Traveler 2 despite yes. despite how much I love Chained Echoes and I, I do think that that is also like 
as we mentioned in our first episode talking about it, pulling from so many different influences and and I think taking them a step further and and kind of creating one possible future for what the genre could be. I feel like Octopath Traveler 2 is the one that I go back to the most um, and is the one that I, I end up booting up the most and like wanting to see more of. To be clear, I'm like almost at the end of Chain Echo, so I should probably just like finish that. But yeah, Octopath is the one that like really kind of has me in its clutches, um, which wasn't the case for like probably six months of 2023. Yeah, it was kind of a slow burn for you because you, you didn't love it at first. I, didn't, I honestly yeah. understand. I do think it's still like there's still a little bit of Octopath oneiness to some moments early on. I think, yeah, you, I think in the first act specifically, like I think I think the act of going and picking up all the characters and building the party out like at the beginning is maybe the weakest part of the game, which is definitely unfortunate because a lot of people will bounce off in that point. And I did until you kind of implored me at a certain point, like probably over the summer or something like, hey, you should check this game out again. And I'm so glad I did because it really that's when it really kind of got its hooks into me. Yeah. And what's great, too, is like you are free to just recruit. Like I would actually recommend for most people, like recruit the four that look the most interesting and just focus on them. Mm. Don't even pick up the other four until you're like ready. Yeah. You know, I kind of, like I, I sort of did that. And then I eventually just got everybody. The one thing worth noting, the, the levels don't carry over. So like if someone's not in your party, they're not going to level up with you. I've seen some debate on whether or not that's a good idea. Usually that's like a death rattle for me. Like you, like if, if Baldur's Gate 3 did that, yeah. I would not be as kind to that game as I am. I do think, though, for the case of Octopath 2, I don't mind it. One, because I think leveling up is kind of the point. And I do sort of like the mission of like, okay, now I'm going to bring this character with me, get them up to speed, experiment with them, learn their builds. And there are ways, like there are items that make Metal Slime equivalents pop up more commonly mm -hmm. that will get them to where you need them to be much faster. So it's not a deal breaker. I, I don't know if, if I would have hated if they all just leveled up together, but um, I don't mind it for, for the style of, of gameplay that's here. Yeah. I, I, one of these days, somebody's going to make the turn-based combat RPG. That's going to really just check off every single box for me. You know, it's going to, it's going to have all of that little stuff, all that little quality of life stuff. Like I remember us talking about Dragon Quest 11, like our one note on that, entire game was why isn't the turn order visible like that's the only <laughs> like the only thing that you and i wanted from that game yep you know one of these days somebody's gonna somebody's gonna do it somebody's gonna fly close to the sun and not burn their wings off now uh if you'll indulge me so when we first brought up octopath traveler one i made like an unhinged ranking of all the characters oh my god did you do it again yes wow you didn't allude to this at all in the hour of prep we did before this i'm episode. really bad at keeping secrets i'm amazed usually you, yeah, i'm like you kept this one usually okay. like, i did something pretty cool about this game and you're like, you like immediately know what it is <laughs> uh so so i when I played the game for the first time and I got every character, my idea was like, based on my early game experience, I'm going to kind of pitch the like how everyone's story is, how they are in combat and kind of like suggest who to start as. Um, so this is like the mid game update of that. I, I will do it again once I've finished just to see how wrong I am again, because boy, was I wrong the first time. So in some cases. Uh oh, uh, all right. Well, I, I really followed your list of the letter when I played and picked up all the characters. You still made a good choice. I, I would, I would say like in terms of like, who do you start with? I think the, the thing about this game is that there's so much customization. Everyone is viable. And I think it's most important to choose who you think is most interesting. Just mm -hmm. like gut feeling, choose your house and three houses. Yeah. The two I would say would probably be easiest to start with. And I think, make sense narratively to be the lead 
are Hikari and Ochet. Um, Hikari just has like classic Final Fantasy leading man energy and Ochet is playing Pokemon. It makes perfect sense. She would pick up people on her journey. Oh yeah, totally. I did start with Hikari. Hikari was a great start. Hikari is a great pick. Also, just like the further into the game, you get him just being like overwhelmingly powerful as you as you get further in. It's really nice to start with him and kind of have a head start in terms of where he's at. Absolutely. So here again, I'm open to being wrong. I think uh, I've actually looked at other people's lists and they're kind of all over the place, which to me communicates. It's really just about who you like using and like. But I do think there are some characters that are just like require less setup. Um, So here's the combat tier list. In S tier, we've got Ochette. Uh, who was an early favorite. She's just unbelievable. Hunters get access to a lot of really great physical moves. And also her character's like talent is that she can catch beasts and use them as summons like Pokemon. Have you gone into her story at all? Mm -hmm. You eventually, all her chapters are about catching a legendary beast. And it is, there's one giant volcanic monster you eventually get that screams in a human voice whenever you summon it. It's like when you mentioned before, like when you boost all the way, it's always like a jump out of your seat moment and summoning that beast is like, it It feels more like a legendary Pokemon than legendary Pokemons have felt for years. For mm. me. I actually think we, we talked recently about like what we want out of like a modern day Pokemon like. Yeah. And I think Ochet's story is not far off. Like I think she actually gives a pretty good blueprint of like what a more RPG centric Pokemon game could look like. Yeah, actually, I, th- I think on that note, uh, not to belabor the point, but I do think it's just worth highlighting how different this game feels from the first one in that in this game, you could rip out any of these characters storylines and that would be like a pretty good RPG on its own. I think, you know, obviously some are still better than others because they're not all going to be, you know, 100% hitters. But uh, I think I think that's a great point. I think that's a great point. Like Hikari's, Hikari's story is amazing. Like that could just be its own RPG. That could, yeah. as you mentioned, that could just be a Final Fantasy game. Ochats could be a new Pokemon. Like it, it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And keep in mind, this is the, this is my mid game analysis. So I'm like about, I'm at least two chapters in with everyone if not four for other characters mm. and i played for 50 hours so it's like i'm i'm sort of halfway through yeah um two, uh, three more in s tier for combat we've got casti agnia and throne i totally slept on casti in the early game i think the apothecary as a class is still a little bit underwhelming in terms of like their core move set however the ability to concoct stuff with ingredients is completely busted like it's she, it's unreal yeah she has access to like every status effect multiple weaknesses and her latent ability lets her craft without using ingredients so you can just like make the most powerful potion or poison without needing the actual components yes the only downside is you need to spend like money to buy a lot of the items but like you can also just have thrown a steal it all so like right. i just think <laughs> As long as you know that you need like at least like a dozen or so items for each of her moves, like concoct is truly wild. So I think she's like, I get why people consider her often the best character. Agnia, I also bumped up to S tier. She's the dancer. I think at first glance, she seems pretty weak, but dancers, the ability to buff and her talent giving like another random buff when you dance is really, really good. And her EX skill, which across the map, there are like altars for all the different classes that will teach each character like a hidden skill for their class 
and the hidden skill for the dancer is a giant wind spell that hits all enemies and then makes your entire party go first next turn. It's so good. Um, and I think also Agnia's latent ability, she will make a move that's supposed to target one ally or enemy, target all allies or enemies. Yeah. And that's where if you combine that with other classes, that's where I think she can really get completely busted. Yeah, that that's that's I think the big uh the big thing for for Agnia. And also, I mean, we talked about this a lot with Octopath Traveler 1, but like Bewildering Grace, just so fun. Just so oh, fun. It's amazing. It's just like maybe the most fun dice roll. It's like the equivalent of going to the casino and spending all your time in the casino in Dragon Quest. But in this case, you get to do it in combat and sometimes uh, it rewards you hand over fist. I also have Throne and Hikari in S tier. Uh, I kind of we already sort of touched on them. So, I mean, Throne just doesn't stop having her turn. And Hikari is like <laughs> yeah. the main character of a Final Fantasy game. Uh, and A, I have Oswald. I think he's also really good, but he requires a lot of setup. Like his big thing is that he can buff his own spell list to have more advanced spells. And then his latent power does the opposite of Agnia's where it does, instead of applying to all enemies, it applies to one enemy and does more damage. So it, it like he can, like his potential is very high, but it, I feel like it requires like four turns to properly set up. But even still, I think it's helpful to have a scholar and his ability to like, spot enemy weaknesses without using a move is always helpful mm. and then in b i have particio and temenos both super solid i just think the merchant other than donating bp is like kind of underpowered in my opinion like i think hired help is really good if you have the money for it um and i imagine there's a lot of combinations with him that could be like very game breaking but i just think like on his own i don't know I, I don't find the merchant super compelling in this game yeah i haven't i haven't gotten to double classing yet but i'm I'm wondering if i'm going to get to a point where it's going to activate the like marvel snap part of my brain in a way where it's like oh wait there is something really interesting i can do with this character but at the moment particio is always uh in, in the background for me yeah and temenos i also have in b i think he's solid but there's nothing there's no ability he has that i'm like i gotta match that up with another class he's just sort of like solid all around yeah and then i have for story this is kind of harder to rank because like again i don't think any of them are like earth shattering narratives but they're all fun and i like the variety but so far weirdly enough i put um in s tier temenos and ochet i just really like the tone of ochet's story like i think with other characters you get either a very like optimistic and perhaps naive view of the world like through particio or Agnia's point of view. And then if you're playing as Throne or Oswald, it's like crushingly bleak. Ochet, I think, feels like a fish out of water in a way that's really fun. And the fact that she's playing Pokemon and no one else has heard of Pokemon is just thrilling. <laughs> like, I just love that as the driving force of her story. And I think her sense of character is also really strong. So mm -hmm. I've like kind of flipped on her story, even though like narratively it's not really that rich. I just think it's fun. Temenos, meanwhile, though, is playing Ace Attorney. Uh, and I just love his like mystery, what's going on in this evil church story. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. And then everyone else is kind of like between A and B. I'm starting to turn a little bit on Oswald's story. I just don't care about Harvey like at all. <laughs> but the one character who I'm enjoying more is uh, Casty. I think her story in chapter one was the weakest, but I really like her sense of duty and honor, despite not knowing who she is. Like, I think being an amnesia story is kind of eye rolly, but I think like she's great. I think that makes up for the trope being kind of tired. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think compared to other amnesia stories and other 
game specifically um she is they're not using her amnesia as a way for the player to just kind of impart their own personality and identity onto the character like she has a really strong innate sense of who she is and what's going on even though she doesn't technically know like her name or where she came from exactly so we're at least as the player given like okay we know who she is and there's just more to learn rather than like i have no idea who this blank slate is right right but yeah that's basically it i'll I'll definitely do an update when i finish the game uh thank you for your time (laughs) you're welcome uh cool so why don't we take a quick break and then bring up our last our very last game in this giant our very last game on into the aether before we change (laughs) to a movie podcast movies wing of the goose bye-bye welcome back hello to this pretty long episode of the show i think yeah it's you know it's fitting though that we're bringing this game up again Baldur's gate 3 because <laughs> truly brendan i don't know if i've said this on the show it has been difficult to play anything else like in this in this year of incredible games and like I'm really glad that we've made time for all the things we brought to the show today. But like there, especially like in the in the summer when it came out, like between August and October, it was impossible to not just start like a new run. At this point, I have six characters. I I can't stop. And I'm very excited to hear how your journey has been going. Yeah. Yeah. So um, weirdly enough, I, I don't think I've had the same pull into this game that you have. So. I I took a long time away from the game um, in between the last time I played it and when I booted it up again because I was like, I should really play a lot more of this game for Goaty Prep. Um, If you want to hear more about our Goaty Prep, by the way, that was uh, our most recent, actually not our most recent, but last week's Any Percent episode was about kind of how we prep for Goaty and our our thought processes behind it and stuff. And I really sat down. I was like, I'm going to spend a bunch of time playing Baldur's Gate 3 again this week. And um, I loaded up my character, Charlie, who is like on the precipice of act two. Uh, And I was like, I forget how to play the video game. Like I, I just forgot like everything about it. So usually what I do, if a game allows me multiple save files and I feel like I've totally like lost my way, I will just start a new game and save it as a separate save file and just like learn the ropes again and like get myself used to and, and, and kind of accustomed to the way the game works and just the game logic and then pick up where I was at and then continue on. That's also specifically, I think, one of the best ways to begin a Baldur's Gate 3 journey. Cause I think I, I know a lot of people who started the game and like they just felt overwhelmed that didn't really work for them. And then they made a new character and then it suddenly clicked. Yes, my uh, my dwarf fighter, Charlie, uh, is I think my second Baldur's Gate 3 character technically because my first like 10 or so hours of the game were literally just me like learning and understanding how Baldur's Gate 3 works and then realizing that I had just kind of made a character on a whim without really putting any thought into it and like had a better idea of how I wanted to go about interacting with the world uh, and what my character should have been which is where Charlie came from but going back and revisiting Charlie I was like I have no idea what I'm doing I have no idea where I am I don't know I don't remember a lot about who these people are. I mean, I, I remember a lot of the characters and some of some of their subplots, but like, I don't really remember where I left them. Um, so I was like, I need to take a step back. I need to start over. And I, I took your advice, Stephen. I considered the dirge, oh, um, yes. which if uh, this is your first episode hearing about Baldur's Gate 3, I won't revisit and, and just uh, go over all the same stuff a second time. But it's worth mentioning in Baldur's Gate 3, when you start 
the game and create a character, you can either create your own character from scratch or you can pick what's called an origin character, which if you've ever looked at the box or seen any screenshots of the game, all of the party members that you can get in Baldur's Gate 3 are all characters that you could play as instead if you wanted to. Like if you were like, I really like this vampire looking guy. I want to play as him. You could do that. Weirdly, at the end of the list of origin characters, there's one that's called the Dark Urge, which just not so subtly implies you're probably some kind of serial killer. You have some kind of voice in the back of your head that is imploring you to murder. And it is the only one of the origin characters that you can completely customize as if it was an original character, which you and I posited in, in our episode where we talked a lot about the dark urge character. Cause you've been playing as the dark urge a bit that there is a weird way in which the dark urge character feels like it might've been initially the default at some point in the development cycle of Baldur's Gate three, because just thematically what all of the separate characters are going through, each of them are dealing with some kind of compulsion to do something and, and breaking free of that and finding out who you are removed from this compulsion, I think is one of the things that's driving a lot of these characters forward. And, and the player character, if you start as just kind of a blank slate is the only one that's like noticeably missing that aspect of their character, which I think works for a lot of people. And for some people, it might be like kind of the missing thematic link, which is why you you uh, brought the dark urge to the show and we're like, it's worth considering to make the whole game thematically feel enveloped in this one central idea for your player character to also be dealing with a thing similar to the rest of the party. Yeah, it should be clear. Like, I'm glad they made I'm glad they gave you the choice, because I think for if, if, mm-hmm. if you just had to be the dirge, I think a lot of people would have been put off by the game. Yeah. Um, but I think like especially when you get to act three, not to spoil it, but like as you're playing the game, there are moments and areas that are like clearly built with a certain character in mind. So like the mountain path with the Githyanki crush, very much a Lazelle chapter. It would be weird if you didn't put Lazelle in your party for that. Same thing with Shadowheart and the Underdark and other areas there. You know, it, the the game is gives you the freedom to do whatever, but it's clear like when it's a certain character's story moment. And what they do, which I love, is like if you don't have that character in your party, your journal will update and be like, we should tell them about what just happened. And that way you can continue their story, even if they weren't in your party. Mm-hmm. They'll usually be pissed that they were at camp when you like met their dad or something. But, <laughs> and I think what prevents uh, Tav is sort of the de facto name for like the player character. Cause that's the name that populates before you enter one playing as Tav. I don't think feels incomplete by any stretch. One, I think the game really is interested in, in encouraging you to role play. So you'll, You'll always have an idea who your character is, even if it's not explicitly said. But I also think because the there's that uniting event of the Mind Flayer parasite being put in everyone's head, and then there's the conversations with the dream visitor eventually, like that does feel like enough for the player character. Okay, that's like their thing if they're not a dirge. Like that's kind of what's propelling the story forward. Yeah. So what's also worth noting about the dark urge is that you can give into it. You know, you can commit to a fully evil playthrough where you're just like a murderer and listen to the voice in your head. But I've found, so the character I made a tiefling paladin named Sierra with Ares ram horns. Um, she's, she rules. She is resisting the urge and trying to be a hero despite it all. And there's so much dialogue about that. And like, it's weirdly sweet how supportive the characters are where they're like, I know this isn't you. You can overpower this feeling because they're all going through something similar, you know? And it it almost feels like narrative hard mode in some ways because like there are moments where you'll have to roll to resist and it's like 
really tense. Yeah. And of course you can save scum, but still. But I, I just, I've just found it like when I first heard about it, I thought it was like kind of made for streaming and to shock value. But I've, I found it to be a surprisingly rich narrative experience and it's the it's the playthrough that i think once i finish i'll probably be the most fond of yeah because as as you mentioned one of one of the strengths of the dark urge character like i think i think if you just kind of gave in to all to the dark urge every single time a, a unique dialogue option popped up i think then it would kind of play into the like streamer bait shock value kind of thing but there is a more nuanced more interesting version of that character that you can play that is heroic despite this thing that's plaguing their mind um, which is already, I think, really shocking and really fun to play as um, in comparison to Charlie, who is like very much a blank slate kind of dude. Um, you know, he's he has a personality that I've imbued into him in my own head. You know, that I am role playing as that character. But the Dark Urge just has like a lot more nuance and a lot more interesting stuff popping up on like. I'm not going to say a minute to minute basis because it's definitely not that often, but like anytime a dark urge moment comes up, I'm like kind of surprised and taken aback by it because I feel, I mean, having played through the beginning of that game three times now and watching my partner also play through the beginning of that game, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of how, you know, the opening act kind of plays out and any moment in which I'm deviating from my expectation on that is pretty shocking. So the dark urge has been, really fun so far and i'm i'm almost at a point where i'm like now deciding if i just continue that as my kind of main playthrough or if i go back to charlie i really can't decide um what class did you make for your for your dirge character they're they're a ranger they're a a, a drow ranger um which I, I also thought it'd be fun to be a drow considering how many drow you run into over the course of the first act of the game and and the way in which that entire like race is painted in in the universe um, I was like, I think it'd be really interesting to be a drow who is battling with being evil. Yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, there's actually I just made a drow because I've been fully Octopath 2-ified and I'm obsessed <laughs> with multiclassing now. So I was like, I just had an urge and I, I've I had a dark urge. Yeah, I, I've I've liked making characters like I have a few that I'm like, you know, I beat the game once as my monk Lester Dragonborn. And then the, the two other characters that I'm like. I want to see through one is my tiefling paladin dark urge character and the other is a uh, bard warlock who i'm playing in a multiplayer campaign so i'm like these feel so distinct like having the multiplayer experience having the dark urge experience like i want to see those through yeah but i've also just every now and then gotten the urge to like make a new character just to kind of verify what builds could be fun yeah um and so i made a drow cleric monk who i just i just loved that combo yeah it's like a, a cool pun idea a punch priest um, and she's also a drow and it's like, are you the version of drow that wants to make peace? Yes, yeah, I am. That's cool. yeah. Yeah. So similar kind of idea, although she's not a dirge character, but like everyone is so rude to me. Like you, <laughs> you save Zevlor's ass from the goblins yes. and all the teething refugees. And he's like, it's brave of you not to hide your heritage here. Yes. Like, I'll, he's like, I'll just tell everyone that like you helped us just so they don't like kill you on sight, basically. Right, exactly. Which like, you know, when you meet the other drow, you can see why that's the perception. But like more so than any like any other race you play, there isn't that level of animosity towards them. And it's the flip if you're a tiefling. I feel like if you're a tiefling, everyone's like, you know, considers you family right away because that's most of who's there mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the Druid Grove. But uh, yeah, I, I, I love that idea of like, challenging both the perception of like what drow are capable of and also fighting this internal voice and it's worth noting too like when you highlight the origin characters including the dark urge character whose placeholder is like this white dragonborn sorcerer he looks really cool to be honest they all have little monologues explaining what their story is if you want to play as them 
And the dark urges monologue, he's like panicked and says that he wants to resist. So not to say that like a playthrough where you give into it is not valid. Like the, the game is made to be played however you want to play it. I just think it's richer and more interesting to resist. And from what I've been told from people who have seen it through, it seems very much worth committing to. Mm, so I, cool. I, I'm really glad you're experiencing it at least and whether or not it's like you're, I think even if you switch back to Charlie and see the game through, you'll probably want to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of my feeling on it. it the, the thing about this game is it's just such an investment. You know what I mean? Like it going through an entire playthrough, it takes a long time. So I'm a little bit ambivalent about just throwing away all the progress I have on Charlie, but I'm just having such a completely different experience this time around that I'm almost like, I, I think I want to commit to it. I think it seems like the more interesting yeah. for me. Um, also, I'll just be frank, like playing as a ranger is like way more interesting to me than playing as a fighter, which I wasn't expecting. I think I found over the course of playing as Charlie that I, I defaulted to essentially just like keeping everybody else as a, as a ranged fighter. And then Charlie would just go up and beat the shit out of people. And I'm kind of enjoying the reverse of that now where like, yeah. where, where my drow can kind of hang back. Um, and, and I have now a completely different party lineup than I had, uh, in the, in the Charlie run because it, playing as a ranger kind of necessitated that, which I think is fun. Um, and I'm like building all the characters in different ways. So believe it or not, the game's got legs. <laughs> I also, I would recommend if, if you also are multi-class pills, like I am, I. If you dabble in rogue for one or two levels just to get cunning action, that pairs really well with ranger where you just become like, can I just turn that on or off whenever I want? Can I just like dip into multi-classing whenever, or is that a choice I had to make at the top? No, you can do it whenever. And you can also, if you wanted to start over, you can talk to withers and just completely relevel everything. Oh yeah, you're right. Um, I forgot about that. It, it costs a hundred gold, but like I've done that. If I've done that, where like, I'm not happy with like a spell list I chose or I want to like dabble in multi-classing. Mm -hmm. But how it works without using withers is whenever you level up, there is on the bottom a icon that says add class. I think on PlayStation it's square. Oh. And that just lets you, you can choose any class you want to take a level. I have up. never noticed that. Yeah. The only trade-off is that, so the level cap is 12. So if you multi-class, you're essentially like, you won't get to see what a level 12 ranger looks like. Mm. Um, but honestly, most classes get their best stuff at like two or three and not, not that you have to do that, but I think, I do think Ranger and Rogue, like they go together real nicely. Totally. Um, yeah. and, and getting cunning action is just like so helpful because that gives you, you know, a little bit more uh, momentum in your turn. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm really, and that's, that's what becomes addicting is like you beat the game, you think you're done. And then you're like, what if I romance this character or use this character or like <laughs> right. committed to this choice like even outside of like being good or evil or like dirge or not there are so many other there's so much variety overall that like even if you like my first character i dabbled in after i beat the game as my monk was a, a deep gnome sorcerer named coral who i love and i largely played the game the same way and it f still felt so distinct even just like being a sorcerer and getting like different dialogue for being a gnome and for being you know like uh, actually a lot of the sorcerer dialogue is just dunking on gale for being a wizard which is so funny <laughs> like there's one line where he's like you have to like look at sheet music whereas i can play it by ear talking about their like use of magic mm -hmm. stuff like that i just find so rich and i I mean, I think like me, by the end of this game, you'll love these characters so much. Like, I think I haven't really been this attached to a cast since like Mass Effect or Three Houses. I just think they're all 
remarkable characters um and all the voice acting is incredible like it's just a surprise it's a good game (laughs) but uh i i'm really happy you consider the dirge and that it's going well for you yeah yeah it's it's really um it's really illuminating a lot of what this game has going for it for me uh which is Definitely good for goatee season. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. I don't want to I don't want to say too much more uh, for fear of spoiling that episode eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I wait your takes with bated breath. Anyway, why don't we wrap up? Let's do it. Let's let's cut the cord. Unless you want to talk about Donkey Kong some more. I kind of do, honestly. Yeah. What do you who's your favorite? <laughs> I like the weird orangutan from 64 Lanky. Oh, yeah. He's the one with like, the dark urge. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you like the show and you want to help it grow, uh, you can recommend it to a friend. We are really, uh, all our advertising is through word of mouth. So that helps tremendously. You can also rate and review us on Spotify or Apple podcasts into the cast that online is our website with links to everywhere. You can find the show, listen to the show. Also links to our Patreon there. Um, a few updates. One, our Twilight princess bonus is going to come out likely the week before game of the year we realized that we usually take that week off so we thought it'd be a fun pre goatee treat to have the twilight princess bonus come out at that time so that that's only in a couple weeks so you're going to get that real soon very excited for that conversation also if you want if you're listening to this and you're like i want you to know my goatee list steven and brendan it's not all about you okay you said to us and I agree. There's a poll in our Discord, uh, links to the Discord and to the cast it online. We have two polls. One poll, they're both pinned messages. One poll is what we do every year, which is the Discord's top five. So you'll be prompted in a Google form to give us your top five. The only required field is the game of the year. So if you're like, I really want to vote for, you know, Baldur's Gate 3, but I haven't played four other games this year, that's fine. You can just vote for your number one spot. Um, all instructions on that are on that poll. It's all on the Discord as well. And then we look at all the results and we'll share what the Discord's top five is on that episode. We also, so we started doing this a couple of years ago, this thing that you coined Games of the Other Years or Go Toy. Uh, we actually have, it started off as like kind of a joke, but we've seen the reception to that idea. And I think it is kind of like in a weird way closer to like the heart of the show to highlight stuff outside of this year. Totally. So we do take a moment on the Goaty episode to talk about our favorite games we played this year that are not from 2023, which even just doing that Dreamcast episode alone, we have a lot of. Yeah, I really had to limit myself on my list this year. Yeah, I was thinking about like, what does a go toy poll look like? And I'm like, there's just there's going to be too much data for there to be any form of meaningful consensus. And then someone in the discord brilliantly pointed out, like, why not just share, do the flip, like share the number of unique games that were voted for. I think that's a really beautiful thing. So I think alongside the discord's top five, we'll also just share like, here's the number of different games people really like loved this year that were from a different time. Uh, and I will also in that, that poll, I'll keep an eye out for games that get more than if you get more than five votes in the go toy poll, you're a hit as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> I will know all the games that get more than five and those will be like honorable mentions in that, in that part of the episode as well. So that's all in the discord Todd princess bonus. I already talked about, I think anything we, else. Yeah. I, I just want to mention on the, on the goatee side uh, of, of, of this is like, I would I would abide by our rules for what counts for Goaty, which is basically if you can make a case for it, it can count. 
I think like, yes. I don't think, you know, don't, don't belabor like, oh, you know, Chained Echoes, for example, like that came out last year. We're counting it for this year. Things like that. Like people voted for Chained Echoes last year and that was fine. People will vote for Chained Echoes this year and that'll also be fine. But on top of that, if you're like Metroid Prime Remastered, that's my game of the year. Absolutely. 100%. And you can make a case for it in your head. Then like, fine, put it in there. That's totally fine. I think you and I are not counting that game. But for this list, it's your list. Do whatever you want. Make your own rules. On the flip side, like. Every now and then I'll see a game that's like from like 10 years ago. Someone voted for me once. Like I'll count it all, you know, because it's not going to win. Obviously, (laughs) I'm not going to be the game of the year. Well, unless it's unless it's a concentrated effort on the discord's behalf. But uh, yeah, just use your best judgment. And, you know, I'm excited. I always like seeing how that nets out. So I'm excited to share that in a few weeks. I mean, we're recording on the 16th. So those polls will remain open until the 15th. That's so exciting. I think, um, uh, I, don't, I actually don't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> Donkey Kong? Donkey Kong. Uh, that's it. I think we should go like eat lunch or dinner. I don't know what time it is even. I don't, uh, yeah, it's just dark out now. I don't, <laughs> it just became nighttime somehow. We record this show in the morning. Yeah, I, uh, I really enjoyed this long episode with you. And uh, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. And, uh, enjoy the beginning of a new season. Yes, yes. See ya. Garbage.